1: What is the limiting principle? If uh, where, where does w- how I define myself, where is the boundary of that? Where does it bump up against something? And And I don't know what the limiting principle is. I'm not saying that transgender shouldn't exist or shouldn't be accepted because of it. But I do think that philosophically what we have to go is where does my description of myself stop and bump into your experience of me? Here we are. We got a lot today. Do Fire have, away, dude. Do you have a lot? Yeah. All right, let's do it. So you've heard of The Social Dilemma on Netflix? No. There's been a couple of people talking about it. I got an email from Mind Valley. It's a documentary about how social media
2: is bad. Oh, yeah, I saw this. It seems very self-explanatory. That's why I didn't watch it. I was like, what year was this released? Yeah. Why is this popular? Did no, you I saw know? It, I saw it on Trending, and I was like, what am I going to hear? That the, And it literally has a cell phone icon. It's yeah. Like, You're going to tell me that? Facebook on my phone is bad for me. Did you know that social media is purposefully addictive? Yeah. <laughs> like, Apparently there's something called dopamine. <laughs> yeah. And when you get a
1: notification, your brain releases it. I was
2: like, what? what?
1: It was so it's. we been known this for a decade. So that was my first thought. I watched 30 minutes of an hour and a half. I was like, this is seems like it's a time capsule. Yeah. Uh, good for you. I didn't even click it. Completely out of time. I wanted to chat about it because it seemed popular and I didn't want to watch the other one with little kids twerking. So Beauties. I was like, I'm going to skip that one. Uh, but. The fascinating thing about this that I think is the the perhaps deeper level analysis is that it's this documentary about how bad social media is and it's tearing the world apart and how it's got all of these casino-like things featured with the infinite scroll that they have, the likes being dopamine, figuring Mm -hmm. out, tagging your photos. And it's on Netflix, a platform that when you hover over a show, auto plays it from the beginning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it seems... You know, and they're listing all of these dangerous social media sites, and there's ten of them. And Netflix doesn't make the list, mm-hmm. as if somehow being not advertiser generated dollar business model exempts you from this criticism. Yeah. <laughs> so it well, seemed it seemed very unself aware that it was a sensationalist documentary saying that we have this new problem that has never existed, which is completely false. That uh, the basic thesis is that. Never before have we had so many people trying to manipulate other people. It's like, how do you think communication evolved? Do you think think communication is meant to convey only true facts? They used to put cocaine (laughs) in Coca-Cola.
2: Do you think that that wasn't addictive? Yeah, it's forever.
1: Forever. As long as there's been communication, there's been manipulation. Uh the Madison Avenue, like Mad Men in the sixties, and even before that, yellow journalism in the eighteen hundreds. Sure. It just treats this as a sensationalist new problem. And I'll grant
2: them that its scale and scope has expanded. Yeah, I think the, the motivations of people haven't changed. What technology can do is make something more expansive. So yes. The desire to manipulate by corporations has always been there. Mm-hmm. But perhaps the fact that you carry around a supercomputer in your pocket just gives them more access to your brain than they used to have. Absolutely. But it, it treats it as a
1: completely qualitatively new yeah. issue that is, in my opinion, the oldest thing that people have tried to do is influence what other people around them do and netflix gets included in that they made this documentary it's not at no point will there be a call to action to delete your netflix subscription
2: (laughs) well certainly not in the
1: netflix video (laughs) yes and it's like why would then facebook tell you to get off of facebook at any time or why would why would the guy who creates or who the butcher at the store create a food that satiated you for the rest of your life like th- yeah. this is not what any business has ever done this isn't a new problem and consumerism underlies everything and weirdly enough the medium is the message and this exists on yeah. on netflix and then i comment on on youtube and it
2: was it seemed very unself aware. well the thing i thought was interesting is who is this message for because mm-hmm. i don't think it's for anybody who is addicted to their phone it's not for a 15 year old that is doing tiktok more than some therapist would say is healthy they're mm-hmm. not going to watch the documentary and if they are They're not going to be persuaded. It reminds Mm -hmm. me of that video I sent you. Paul Rudd did a certified young person COVID mask PSA. And as I was watching it, I was like, the only people that will like this are people who already feel this way, Mm -hmm. that everyone who doesn't wear a mask is selfish and that they're dumb Mm -hmm. because it's completely unpersuasive if you think the opposite of what Paul Rudd is saying. And so I was like, who is this for? This is just almost masturbatory in the sense that you get to watch it and feel good about being superior to the other people. And when I saw that documentary. For those people like, who haven't seen it,
1: it's Paul Rudd. And it's it's intended to be humorous, but he's he's pretending to be a young person, talking in overly affected young person slang. And then at the end of it just kind of breaks down. He's like, wear a bleeping
2: mask. Like yeah. Jesus Christ. Like which I um, imagine is completely unpersuasive to young people yeah. who don't think COVID is a serious thing. If yes. you're young and you already think COVID is serious, sure, you'll like it. But mm-hmm. my point is, well, why make a video that changes no behavior? That's kind of how I felt about this next Netflix documentary, which is like no one is going to watch this and change their behavior. What it's going to be is a bunch of people that already think social media is bad are going to watch it and then congratulate themselves, even though they still use social media. After they spend they, an hour and a half. <laughs> because <laughs> they already have this belief. Yeah. So I was yeah. just like, okay, well, this seems great marketing in the sense that you create a video people want to watch because it's self-affirming. And that's what everybody wants to watch. is something that agrees with what they do. But in terms of changing behavior, it seems like a very ineffective thing to do. It's really... Documentary on Netflix with information we've had for the last ten years. So, what I think the I was like, okay, so how does this work? If you presume that every system
1: is working right towards towards its actual goal, oh, it is exactly. So the actual. So, and I was thinking about it as it's the same idea we've talked about. How uh, car advertisements with beautiful women actually sell Macy's products for lipstick because Mm. the beautiful woman is wearing lipstick, which lets you know this is a beautiful woman, and so you better be especially receptive to makeup advertising uh netflix had the cuties documentary and it also had this which were huge on youtube and so in a weird way this is netflix promoting youtube to now talk about netflix which will reverse promote watching netflix which is exactly why i'd never heard of this until i saw it on youtube so the consumerist machine just it absorbs everything and this is part of it i'm not pretending that we're outside of it Uh, Now we're creating content, which if we do a good job, keeps our viewer coming back to YouTube to donate more of their attention to advertisers. It's just there's nothing you can do except move to the mountains. It seems like. Do you want to talk about
2: Cuties? Because it was on my list. We brought it up. I have people who don't know what Cuties is. It's a documentary that from the director's perspective is meant to highlight the hypersexualization of young, like very young, like 10 year old girls. Uh, from TikTok and things like that, and how they try to emulate inappropriate adult influencers. The way that they tried to highlight that is by exploiting (laughs) 10-year-old women and making them do Girls. Hyper, girls. I, so I know this. This
1: is something somebody uh, called us out for. We made a video years ago where I, I was talking about like, here's how you get girls to like us in the comments. Were, They're women. They yeah, have yeah, that. Yeah. And so since then, you and I both, every time we talk about a female, say women. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I don't even notice. <laughs> because we're like, we got dinged on
2: that so well, hard. These, anyway, these 10-year-old <laughs> girls, the, the video, it's basically some people are saying like masturbatory pedophile uh, material because it's 10-year-old girls twerking and getting sprayed with water and did they, wearing, di, are they documenting s- it or did they? No, it's it's a fictional movie. It's fictional. It's fictional, yeah. Ooh, and so that's the, troubling. And so it's on, on camera. It's, these girls are dressed very scantily. And it's like, I think an allegory might have been more appropriate here. Or well, something. why not just document the actual problem? So this is the thing is to, to highlight the inappropriate nature of a 10-year-old twerking on TikTok. They hired a bunch of 10-year-olds and then surrounded them with cameras and demanded that they twerk while they filmed it. Which, I, which is just a strange way to get that message across. But that but actually, I'm not here to poo-poo that. What I thought was interesting is when you went to Rotten Tomatoes, at least when I last checked, it had, I think, an 85% critic rating and a 3% general population rating, mm-hmm. which is to say either there's a massive disconnect between what critics like and what the population likes, or there's a message, a political message, that the critics are trying to get across. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of Dave Chappelle. Yeah, I was going to say, just completely Dave Chappelle had a... Zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It was and like then eventually, sub ten, and then eventually it got up to thirty five percent from yeah. the critics, and a ninety nine percent from the populace. Mm-hmm. And it both of these kind of reminded me of the the Hollywood or the Netflix or Rotten Tomatoes type people trying to tell you what you like and what you don't like, and what's appropriate and what's not. And the population just being like, "No, mm-hmm. we think Dave Chappelle's hilarious, and we don't want to watch ten year olds twerk." Mm-hmm. And I just think I just think it's interesting as you you see. I guess, morals or messages try to come from on high and just get completely rejected in some cases? Well, my actual question
1: that I that I have not dug deeply into is how effective and and if not how effective in what cases is that media blitz of this is good or this is bad effective at changing the reaction of a population? So it seems like with cuties it's not been Mm -hmm. very effective in fact it had almost backlash to now the point someone like me who hasn't seen it has been hit with the first message of it's really really bad so even if i were to look at it i'd be coming in expecting that yeah i wonder if it's if it's closer if the critics can move something though that's that seems to be my like if, if something has a 98 critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and an 80 from the audience, I wonder how much critics didn't boost that. And I've seen sure. this in myself. I sit down to watch a movie and I'm expecting something amazing. Like what was the one that everybody liked Parisian. on Netflix? It was the gangster movie on Netflix. Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. The Irishman. Personally, I was waiting for that to get good the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I was just expecting and waiting. And I watched the whole thing. And then I walked out of it and tried to make sense of how it was good. And Later on, I was like, I hated it, yeah. <laughs> is what I concluded. But had I been more ambivalent about it, I think I would have... Just turned it off. W- w- well, I A would have just turned it off if I hadn't read the critics. But if I'd been closer to really loving it, I would have pushed myself in that direction sure. so as to align with the critics. So I think when there's less of a gulf, the critics can nudge people towards them. But when it's just stratospheric, it almost goes reverse. Yeah.
2: Well, they're going to try, right? The Oscars mm-hmm. just came out. They said you can't win Best Picture unless you have certain mm-hmm. diversity requirements met so they're, yeah. they're definitely going to try to influence culture in that way mm-hmm. well they, these are not the critics this is the academy that's what point. i'm saying though yeah it's, I, in my mind it's kind of like hollywood is mm-hmm. trying you know i mean the critics are basically part of hollywood when they tell you that cuties is an amazing movie and an incredibly thoughtful award-winning film yeah and then ev- everyone who watches it hates it to me that seems to be coming from on high from hollywood of like no you want this message mm-hmm
1: yeah. No, I, I want to read that article again. I was actually going to talk about it next time because I wanted to make sure that I had the exact the requirements. Re- the requirements. So let's, sure. let's talk about it next time because
2: I my first reaction was, I was like, you're putting literal quotas on. I think that's the way the world is going to go. Yeah. In my mind, as much as everybody right now is poo-pooing uh, California and California politics, historically, it seems I'm from the East Coast. I have no dog in this fight. It's not like I'm a Californian. That music and style and all this stuff tends to come from California first and then make mm-hmm. its way to the East Coast and then the middle. And it tends to be that way too with, I guess, more progressive social things. So, mm-hmm. like gay marriage, first place I think it was being pushed for was probably San Francisco.
1: Certainly the hippies arose and you know.
2: And so you get, and so you get this kind of first it happens in California, then it hops to the East Coast, then it moves to the middle, mm-hmm. which makes me think if it is the case that Oscar Oscar winning movies have to have quotas where you're like literally 13% African American, I think it's 6% Asian. How much of the population is Asian? Well, the, I
1: would they, they have they might have different quotas that do not match the sure, no, representation if, in the Sure if nation.
2: this is the case. You I don't I don't Let's read the article in, in more depth so to understand sure. it. Sure. I'm just saying if that's the case, I think it'll spread from Hollywood to other companies in California and then mm-hmm. I think it'll spread to the rest of the US. I mean, it's kind of the same way that Uh, trans was like totally unaccepted and now it's very accepted and actually Mm -hmm. the thing that's unaccepted in most cases is saying something negative publicly about anything about trans. And so I think, like it or not, if Hollywood does put Oscar winning movies, they say there's going to be quotas, I think that's the first domino towards eventually like a much more unspoken, no duh, of course our company has to have a certain amount of people measured mm-hmm. by the government or whatever it might be For a certain amount of each race or each sexual orientation yeah. mm-hmm. i think if that's if that's what the oscar thing is saying then i think that's kind of a canary letting you know like that's that's where things are so gonna goes
1: go. the nation yeah, yeah. As, as goes california now the question is i think the way that california has that influence is obviously through media uh but i don't think they change the minds of the the same generation. Like the movie producer in California is not changing the mind of the coal miner in West Virginia. No, it's his kids. It's his kids. Yeah. And so and so I think still these kids uh have it, but I wonder if there's gonna be a firewall that is built because it seems like now the and perhaps I just wasn't alive in the 60s were probably a huge, a huge gulf. But there have been historical pushbacks like there were against the hippies where drugs went too far and then we locked all of these potentially very
2: useful compounds in a cage for sure. like 50, 60 years. Yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking more, I saw a study, I forget the numbers, but basically it was like no one under 18 is mm-hmm. against gay marriage, mm-hmm. no, even no matter where they live, no matter how red state they are. It's just yeah, like, yeah. yeah, we don't care, get married. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is definitely not the opinion that was held from 50-year-olds 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't their know, parents if, probably don't have don't the same I don't know if opinion. that's how they feel. I don't yeah. know if that's how 60-year-olds feel today, but go back 10 or 20 years to a 40-year-old it's not universally considered acceptable for gay people to get married, mm-hmm. but every 15 year old apparently, or not every, but a huge percentage, just cool with it. Yeah, And so I think that's the same way that trans is going in terms of if you're young, you just think it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Everyone that I've seen, not everyone, I keep saying that, but largely most people who are upset about it are older. And if hiring changes such that it, you have like explicit affirmative action rules, a two year old is just gonna think that's the way of the world. And they're gonna think it was weird that it wasn't always that way yeah you know what i mean i was
1: wa- this it, when i was watching the social dilemma the distinct impression that i got is that it, it happens every every single generation is it almost doesn't matter what you're born into the ability of a person to adapt to their culture is nearly infinite like if you live in a warrior culture and they just murder people it's like mm-hmm. you'll just grow up and that'll be normal and that'll be normal for your whole life if you grow up in a society that doesn't have cell phones though, and then you get to work at Google, you're going to be like, wait, are we doing too much? Yeah. But if you grow up in a society where there's a panopticon and everything you do is being measured, none of those kids will complain yeah, <laughs> about yeah. it. So it's what was interesting, again, about this social dilemma thing, It's it's all these people from another generation being like, We've gone too far. That's what I'm saying. We no, need to get back. That's exactly my and point. And these kids are not going to care. No 12-year-old, <laughs> no 12-year-old watches
2: that and is convinced of it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They're they're like, of course they've been tracking me my whole life. How else would I get the good ads? Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and did you see the 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 meme that's going around about Elon Musk and Bill Gates? No. So everyone's like. I'm not going to take a vaccine from Bill Gates. Yeah. He's going to secretly put a microchip in my body. Meanwhile, Elon Musk's like, so Neuralink is a microchip we're going to put in your body. And everyone's like, yeah, Neuralink, yeah, yeah. microchip me. Yeah, it's funny. The PR on those guys, Bill Bill Gates
1: could really use a better PR team or, mm-hmm. or I guess it doesn't matter to him and maybe he's not upset, but I did the video on him. And if one presumes that he isn't, in fact, trying to commit mass genocide and is using billions of dollars to do what he thinks is best for the world and is saving millions of lives through the eradication of various diseases, then he has gotten the biggest gulf between the perception of him yeah, and yeah. his actual contribution. Uh, and Elon, I think, has a better brand in terms of just, there's people that don't like Elon and he's, and he's made He's definitely got a better
2: brand than Bill Gates.
1: Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't have, I don't think people include him in the uh, psychotic trying to kill everyone group, which is weird because he's got almost the more, I'm going to put a microchip in your head and I'm very overt about it idea. And Bill Gates is like, no, I'm just trying to make sure that you don't get polio and or, you know, these other things that have killed tons of people in prior generations. Sure.
2: So poor guy. (laughs) You want to talk a little bit about new media, old media? Do you see the Joe Rogan thing? I think you saw it. I don't know. So Joe Rogan had Tim Kennedy on as a guest. And Tim Kennedy asks mm. him, would you host a presidential debate? Joe says, I would. It's got to be several hours. No AIDS, no earpieces, no teleprompters. Just a conversation between me and them. And I saw that clip. I thought nothing of it. And then Trump tweeted and was like, I'm in. Yeah, yeah. And one, it's just it's amazing that Joe Rogan, a guy that was a stand-up comedian turned comic podcaster, has the pull to have Bernie Sanders, Andrew Yang, and now maybe Trump on the podcast.
1: I wonder and, if Trump will go on the podcast.
2: I think he will. And then two. You, so let, let's, let, can we pause here? You predict it because Joe Biden's not showing up. That's the thing. Joe, Biden wants nothing to do with Of course this. not. Biden wants de- <laughs> the debates to be remote yeah. with, an, with an earpiece and someone off yeah, camera. Yeah, he'd like to record it a few days prior. Yeah, exactly. I
1: understand. So you think that Donald Trump will go in alone to Austin, Texas, Joe
2: Rogan's studio? If he doesn't, I think it's just because of time constraints. I, I think it'd be an absolute win for him. I think he would look great, and I think that's a demo. The people that you think he'd
1: look great. You think Joe would
2: would and him would? Yeah, Joe Joe tends to not be super aggressive to anyone. Has anyone come on there and looked particularly bad?
1: No, but what Joe does, he's not uh, an antagonistic person, but he will ask clarifying questions. He will say where he disagrees, and he will say where things don't make sense to him. Mm -hmm. And so, I
2: if I were advising Donald Trump. I would say go. I would say go. Yeah. Here's the thing. Do you think that going will cost him any votes? Do you think anyone that's currently today on September 17th Could going see to see him on the Joe Rogan? Sees him on Joe Rogan. No. Okay. No. I agree. So there's no downside. Now, do you think that there's open minded people? I think there's who a lot of moderate. Yeah. I think like there's Joe a lot Rogan, of moderate swing votes don't there. like Biden yeah. and would watch Trump for three uninterrupted hours and go, you know what? I've only ever seen him in clips. Mm-hmm. I've only ever seen CNN purposely make him look bad. And I was shocked at how thoughtful or funny or whatever it was to me it seems like an only upside move yeah and he would get probably i mean easily over
1: 10 million on youtube alone i'll be the biggest video times ever. times 20 times another 10 so he's doing at least 20
2: million he's got more reach there than almost anywhere so i would he do get it. more yeah. views than the debates yeah he gets an uninterrupted platform no moderators moderators tended to not like him last year when he and ran. also
1: they have the ability to they're getting there's a team behind them going actually that stat is is untrue
2: and then they'll correct it on the next question and so he's yeah. got to fight pushback maybe which, jamie would do that no and, I, and by the way i think the biggest thing is let's no, pull that up jamie none of his base <laughs> is gonna be turned off by it even if he does say something accidentally sure. wrong yeah all right and he by the way gets to make joe biden look like a coward so he should do it do you think he will I mean, only, the only reason not is because he's running the country. He just literally might not be able to fly to Austin and mm-hmm. get four hours with Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he wants to. I mean, he said he wants to. Uh, he says a lot of things that Dude, I don't think he means. Think about how much he could rail Joe Biden for being a coward for not showing up if he did go. Mm-hmm. He said, here, we had it. We had a chance. Joe is scared. It's just, it's a great thing if Joe doesn't show up. I guess he didn't go in 2016.
1: He went to Jimmy Fallon in 2016. So, and Joe Rogan was still a force of nature in 2016. So, I wonder if I, he still has handlers, and I think he could still call them off because that's his personality, but there still is a resistance
2: to four ununderstood hours somewhere. I don't know. It seems better than the Axios interview where the interviewer is trying to get you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That Joe's was, not going to show up with graphs <laughs> yeah. like the Axios guy did purposely trying to nail him on COVID. Yeah. Joe thinks COVID's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. You're sitting next to a guy who likes small government, doesn't think COVID's a big
1: deal. So you're, you're telling me, here's the thing, you're telling me that he should go and I 100% agree, but I don't know that he,
2: that. that oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the guy, Yeah. but if I'm on his team, if Good. I'm his aide for the campaign, I'm going, dude, Forget this. Forget this thing you were going to do to be president. We got to get you to Austin, Texas.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think I would, too, unless I heard a really compelling argument not to. Yeah. Interesting. Did you have any more on the the debate thing about the Joe Biden not being there? Or? No, no. Got it. You just because I cut you off We
2: talked about Trump instead of Biden. Perkinson. Oh, no, I just think it's a great move because then you get to just call him a coward. Yeah. Which, if he didn't show up, wouldn't be inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Cool.
1: So what else do we got here? Oh, so we are talking. Do you want to talk about media? We're, we're speaking to someone shortly about media. Do you want to talk about the Bridgewater story that I had sent to you?
2: Uh, Sure. I mean, yeah, this is a good tie in. So in 30 minutes, we're going to talk to a journalist who mm-hmm. works at a media company and we're going to talk to him about Basically, whether media is is honest or has an agenda. And- Which is an oversimplification, of course. But uh, so this one
1: story is... Uh, this Ray, isn't his story, by the way. Not his story. A separate story, his for story for The Wall Street Journal, I think, right? Ray Dalio is someone that I check in with because I think he's good at long-term financial predictions as yep. his life has, <laughs> has borne out. So I was checking up on him, and he had a recent thing where he said, hey, we had a problem with this journalist. And he wrote a brief article where... Someone at his company who was a woman had a dispute with about compensation. And uh, Bridgewater had had someone else say that they were not looked at for a promotion due to the fact that they were a woman. So this woman or said- underpaid. I think it was the co They were underpaid. But they, she was underpaid because she was a woman. And this woman, this other woman, uh, had somehow gotten in contact with the reporter, didn't want her name involved in anything, but did say, I'm underpaid. And she said, "Underpaid compared to who? Well, underpaid compared to him, him, and him. Underpaid compared to those men." And she said, "Yes, I am underpaid to underpaid compared to those men, but it's not a gender thing. Mm-hmm. It's not because I'm. It's not because they're men and because I'm a woman. I just think that I deserve more for X, Y, Z reasons." Quick question: Did she say she was underpaid, or that she was having compensation discussions? Having compensation discussions, and I think she said that she was paid less than some men. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, she wasn't emphasizing that they were men. This reporter wrote the article that you can get the title of the article exactly, but is uh, another female f- accusation of being paid less than men follows during time of of these other accusations mm-hmm. and strongly implied in in the title. And see if you can pull this up, Justin, if you can find this Bridgewater article. I'll pull it up so he doesn't have um, the recording. Strongly implied, if you read follows, is that there's this before after causality is implied, like the fact that she is a, um, a woman is the thing that is driving the pay discrepancy. But technically, there's nothing in the title that says it's causal, that it's because or even that she claimed it's because. So then Dalio, because this came out, this woman was mortified and didn't want it to be the case. She contacted I'll give this you reporter. the title.
2: Second top female executive at Bridgewater says firm paid her less than men. Yes. And then there's another thing and th- uh, during allegations of other
1: uh, of other misconduct or something mm-hmm. was the uh, secondary headline. And so she then contacts her supporter and says, hey, I didn't say that. And he says, well, actually, we didn't say that you said that. And she says, OK, I'd appreciate it if you'd update the story with a quote from me saying specifically that I do not think it has anything to do with gender. And he says, well, that's our discretion we're not going to include it,
2: Yeah, (laughs) which is like, she says, I'd really like, she says, I'd really like if you would use my full statement and not just a part of my statement. He says, no, no. Yeah. That's That's our discretion. Up to our discretion. And it's fascinating because
1: what a way to lie without actually saying the words of a lie to say it. Well, it did follow. (laughs) And she is a woman.
2: And it's, this is the, the issue with Well, my biggest thing was How how obviously uninterested in the truth are you when the person the story is about is saying, hey, your story's inaccurate and and I have a correction you could put in, and you go, no, we prefer it the way it is. It's not
1: incorrect.
2: This is the thing. There's nothing incorrect. This is the problem with
1: objectivity, which is to say, well, take a look. Prove to me in a court of law where anything I said is wrong. There is a woman.
2: Yeah. She said this following this. It's not libel. Yeah. But I'm saying the person the story is about is saying, hey. This doesn't accurately express how I feel. This doesn't accurately categorize my complaints. Can you change it to make it more accurate to how I feel since it's about me? Mm-hmm. And they go, no, I don't think we will. It's not about you. It's about, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, like, I don't think we will. I think it gets more clicks this
1: way. Yes, and and serves a particular agenda that is that is to probably to move that reporter's career forward. You know what I mean? It's, it's probably not even so uh,
2: expansive as to include... The women's rights movement, or anything no, no. like that, it's or bad. and I don't think they really care about penalizing Bridgewater because mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think anyone is going to pull their money because Ray Dalio has the direct connections of everyone yeah. who's invested, say this and he just answer. contacted them and said, yeah. "Yeah, so this is bogus. Here's why. Here's mm-hmm. her actual statement." So it didn't hurt Bridgewater, but it might have helped this person's career. Yeah. So the idea of objectivity then goes.
1: We you have to have a more robust idea of what telling the truth means other than saying words that literally aren't false in a court yeah, of yeah, law, yeah. because you have to make an attempt, it seems, to understand the implication. And I tend to have an open mind about things. Go, well, let's hear you do not write that that headline without understanding
2: the obvious implication of it. Let's not play dumb. Right? And <laughs> like, if you do, let's say you do. Right. Once it's brought to your attention, then you change it. You go, oh, oh my God, I didn't realize that I'd written this in a horribly... Wow, it didn't even... (laughs) In a a really uh, aggressive way. That's my mistake. I'll Mm -hmm. make the change. But you definitely don't go, I'm not going to include your full statement. So... It just
1: it really takes, Okay, what is objectivity in journalism? And I don't think objectivity can exist in any field, to be clear, because you're always going the fact that you're writing about Bridgewater implies that Bridgewater is important. Mm -hmm. The fact that you include the fact that it's a woman implies that that is important and not the fact that she's five foot four or that she has green eyes or that she is of whatever descent or that her middle name is Eugenia. Like all of those things are objective truths. The ones that you select to include have the implicit idea that this is. The salient trait in the story, and mm-hmm. everyone picks that up. Yeah. yeah. If, they, if they can you imagine the headlines like second woman with middle name Eugenia <laughs> denied compensation yeah, yeah. increase"? Be like,
2: what do they have against people with no, that name? And I don't know. I don't know what her position was, but certainly you could see you could see a story that says trader who made less money upset that trader who made more money got paid more. Yeah, yeah. And you go, well, this is an, un- uninteresting. Mm-hmm. But if one of them is a woman and the other is a male, you could say trader who's a woman is underpaid compared to a trader who's a male. Mm-hmm. And the company's like, well, yeah, but it's not <laughs> It's not because of their genitalia. We just look at their profit and loss and then we give them a portion of it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's the case here, but certainly even with that where it clearly isn't discrimination, if you say their genders and not who made more money for the company, you can make it seem like discrimination. You can write a million different
1: implied stories telling the truth every time. Mm-hmm. And this is the difficulty of I think any kind of journalism and communication and something that I've We've encountered it in our relationships. So, it, with various open relationships that we had, where it was don't ask, don't tell style, which yeah, is yeah, okay. Yeah. You, we understand that we're each seeing other people, but we'd prefer not to know. And so, it trains in you this, this litigious style of communication. Yeah, it's terrible. I wouldn't it's recommend it. Awful. It's awful. Where, what did you do last night? I went to the bar with my friends, which is true. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like I drove there with my friends, and then there I met someone, uh, and then and and then that person knows not to ask any follow up questions. It's this whole strange uh, way of communicating Letter that of is that is not about the truth. That is that is the type of manipulation that social dilemma is so concerned with, but exists in every sort of human interaction where you don't want someone to know the full expression of everything that might be salient to them Mm -hmm. uh so i don't i'm eager to talk to this person to see what they make of that if they see the same sort of thing in their organization as well because i want to know i want to talk to the guy who wrote that and be like what is going on in your mind like do you not feel bad about this what am i missing that allows you to to leave someone feeling so mischaracterized so
2: i think i've talked to people (laughs) who are similar, not this exact person. And the thing that I've heard from them is they basically say, listen, whether or not this particular woman Mm. is discriminated against doesn't actually matter because at a high level, some women are discriminated against. And so what we're doing is getting the message out that that's a problem. And the fact that we're absolutely making Ray Dalio look bad in a mischaracterized inaccurate way doesn't matter because uh, what we're doing is bringing attention to an issue that's real somewhere yeah and my my comeback is always well why don't you just cover where it's real actually and then you get to just it's harder to find there's a bigger name. seriously yeah yeah, yeah. if we write this but we write kkr no one cares but if we write bridgewater people care and so even if it is and i'm not saying it is happening at kkr but like if it is happening there that's just a less interesting story so we're going to cover it at bridgewater to get attention to the thing and i think that's I think that is. This is a juicy small a. Like juicy. I can't even remember exactly. how to.
1: I can't even remember how to pronounce his name because it's small De a. Chappelle.
2: Small a. Jussie small a. No, and I think and I think it's I think it's completely wrong. Yes. I want to clarify, even though I'm steel manning, I think it's completely wrong. But that is how one justifies. I'll steel man it. The things they carried is a
1: Vietnam. Uh, it's a series of stories about Vietnam. Now he outright says in a, somewhere into the book he says none of this happened, but it all happened. And it's a really interesting take on like, look, I could tell you, but the the specific stories of of what happened in Vietnam occurred in such a way that I don't want to talk about them for whatever reason or I don't want to tell them. But the fact that's, you know, there was a tripwire and
2: it blew this guy's head off. Okay, let me say though, did he use other people's real name that weren't there or did he use fake names? He used fake names. So that's a huge I, difference. Yeah, that's yeah. a huge difference. Because if I wrote a a piece on the Wall Street Journal and I said, these are not real people, but they represent real people. That to me can be much more honest than me going. You're right. I'm it, gonna I'm gonna highlight Ray Dalio. He, I, I take it back completely. If he wrote a piece of fiction that was called "The Things They
1: Didn't Carry," <laughs> and it was about a woman in a firm somewhere, and there was and
2: she was discriminated. Go a against, different way. What if that totally Vietnam fine. story had a had a terrible general, had mm-hmm. a guy that was corrupt, killed his men with with callousness, was racist, and the person's actual name was uh, John Smith, yeah. right? But he called the person, let's say George Bush Sr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be completely wrong, right? Yeah. Well, that's what this is. This is this is using a real person. Yeah. And so you're not just you're not just explaining a problem in the abstract using fake names, but real stories that move you yeah, yeah. in the same way that Vietnam book does. Because the point of the Vietnam book is the story moves you because you knew it was a real person and these atrocities happened to someone and it's visceral, right? Mm-hmm. But this is just going. That company right there does discrimination. Mm-hmm. And they're going, No, we don't. You go, well, someone does. And now we brought more attention to the issue. It's like, well, yeah, but don't do it by making mud, by yeah. throwing my name in the mud. And
1: and he also declares in the book, he says none of this happened. It's a literary device. I'm thinking of the other one, the guy on Oprah, what was it? A million little pieces, James Fry, was a guy who wrote this story of his I think it was addiction. I never read the book, but it was an Oprah's book club bestseller, and he was on the on the thing talking about his addiction, and then it came out that it was hyper exaggerated mm-hmm. and she had him back on the show and she was just like why didn't you just write a book of fiction yeah, yeah. <laughs> like why did you have to say it was real and in his defense the answer which i don't know if he said to her he was just ashamed is you wouldn't have read it yeah, <laughs> you yeah, yeah. like you wouldn't have read my fiction book you needed to believe the same thing there was a book that i was into uh that has well, been here- highly called
2: into question never mind i can list these books off no but here's what i'm saying you game of thrones is completely fictional and it got mm-hmm. read a lot if you have to say your story is true in order to get people to read it but it's fake mm-hmm. then you don't deserve to get read yeah yeah like i understand that that's your selfish motive but oh that's, totally totally that's the same thing as any marketer lying so it's like you wouldn't have read it okay so either write a true story that's moving mm-hmm. or write a story that's obviously fiction and sells like game of thrones yeah. or by the way like Brandon Sanderson mm-hmm. or Rob Hobb, all these people who aren't Game of Thrones but are successful in their small way. But this King person and this person Daniel decided Gaiman. that they would be greedy and focus on their own wealth and fame by tricking people. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I think that you don't that's not a good excuse. You wouldn't have read it if it were fiction. Oh no, it it's not a good excuse. It's, a just, it, it's just the reason. Yeah. yeah like yeah. that's why no, he did that's it. well, yeah. that's exactly what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. This person would probably argue the same thing about why use Ray Dalio's name is mm-hmm. because he gets the most. Because we're talking about it, and we wouldn't talk about it if it were a firm that no one had ever heard of. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I wonder if it's more than that. Uh, I don't know that there's even that much.
1: There's this weird, and I I don't think a lot of people, and I'm not, I don't know this particular individual, but in my conversations, I don't see a lot of people spending a lot of time thinking deeply about what honesty means. Mm -hmm. And so this person can go, look, show me the lie. Where's the lie? She is a woman. It did follow this, you know, show me the lie in my article. Mm -hmm what you make of it is none of my business could be the uh perception and my job is simply to not tell lies you know donald trump got the statistic wrong which is a lie and that's not good and i i, I do think that in journalism and in marketing i am not like cuz we we encounter this all the time when we talk to people that want to do some sort of contracted work for us people
2: have not deeply thought about what being honest means and makes. in life dude i'm i i want to get a covid test cuz i'm going to see my family soon yeah. and so i'm going to i'm going to pay i think it's like to get a same day result because I'm gonna do it a day or two before the flight. And you can get that for free if you lie and Mm -hmm. say you have symptoms. Mm. And someone's like, Why don't you just go to this thing and say you're having symptoms? Like it's not I'm that means I'm stealing from this hospital and this health insurance provider that's paying for this test. Like it's not like they just magically occur. You're just saying, Why don't I, instead of paying my own money for a service that I want, rob a (laughs) hospital or rob my insurance? because it's cheaper for me. This is basically the same thing as just going up to the owner of the hospital at knife point and being like, hey, get, can I get 150 bucks? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, but it w- it's just like, an, I think most people, if they hadn't heard this whole spiel and they were going to pay for a COVID test and you say, hey, you know, you can get it for free if you just say you're having symptoms, a huge part of the population just goes, oh, sick. Well, this so is, the- I don't think honesty is necessarily a high priority. And also what's funny is no one thinks they're dishonest. Like even the person that gave me that advice um, I was like, well, that's a lie. And they're like, white lie, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, who cares? That person still thinks that they're honest. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks they're honest, really, it mm-hmm. seems like, with the, with a few exceptions. Yeah, it's it's
1: definitely the exception when you talk to someone like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely lying.
2: Yeah. That, that, that they have that sort no, of self-awareness. Just people's rules. Do you think that lying means you always try to convey the truth? Do you think it means you never utter a lie, but you do what this article did and completely misrepresent facts? Do you think it's... I lie, but only some of the time when like it's really convenient. 95% of what I say is the truth, though. So if one out of every 20 sentences yeah, yeah. is a lie and 19 are true, that makes me honest. Yeah. It's Can just, I get credit for isn't 95%? Yeah, yeah. 90? And it's like, no, one out of every 20 sentences is an incredible. Borderline pathological liar. Yeah. yeah. And they go, well, 95%, dude, that's an A. I'm honest.
1: And what you are instead is if you look at for that person, if you're sitting through this, you're well, I only do it rarely. What you'll find is that you actually have one true God, and that is the God of what is good for me. And you serve that God 100% of the time. Yeah, yeah. And 90, 95% the of the time, it doesn't get in the way. And so your honesty actually isn't at any cost. It's really just, no, this gets me what I want. Like to tell this person that I'll be there at 10 p.m., like that gets me what I want. Uh, but if if you lived in a, in a scenario where you didn't, you you couldn't get what you want by being honest. You'd watch your honesty shrink and shrink and shrink. Now, that said, I would, we talked about this, I would 100% lie to the Gestapo if they showed up at my door in 1940
2: and asked if there were Jews in the oh, attic. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> can we we flash back to Nazi Germany, they knock on the door. Yeah. I'm like, uh, no, Jews? No. I'm not Jewish? Yeah. Definitely not. So
1: I'm not, I think that you need a degree of physical safety in order to be able to even consider some of these things. So, mm-hmm you know we uh, you and i are fortunate enough when i look around it's like look i got very little excuse if any to to lie like the the inconveniences that would occur to me are of an amount that i can afford in so many different ways emotionally financially et cetera. um but i
2: also think that's true of a lot of the people that we're talking about is that well and then that the are, question is yeah it's just what it's just what do they justify cuz what if this guy's going well i got a family if I get more, if I get famous from this book that I wrote, I can provide for them better. Yeah. So really it's food on the table. So I'm just going to trick all these people and buy my book. Everyone's got a reason that their mm-hmm. lie was not a bad thing. Sure. So, yeah, I don't want to spend too much on this one person because I would I'd much prefer to have this individual tell
1: me what they are thinking and justify because I actually don't know that we've even guessed what they might say, but... Before that, we got this call in 10 minutes. So let's hop into one other topic. Sure. Do you wanna just before we do, uh, I think this one's a shorter one, our Connor Murphy
2: conversation. Oh, sure. Do you want to reflect on that? Sure. Yeah. Do you want me to go first? Do you want to talk about how the conversation went or how I feel like I handled myself? What do so, you want to talk about? Oh, uh, we can talk about it. So
1: I I'll start because I I was the one who wanted to speak to him. So mm-hmm. I I watched from I have friends actually that that knew Connor and this whole thing was going down. I was trying to figure out like
2: what is happening yeah. well do you want to start so the reason we want to talk about it is because it was the m- least well-received podcast we've ever done that's yeah. why we want to bring it mm-hmm. yeah, up because yeah. i think it's interesting m- more downvotes than any other podcast largely the comments which i mean i appreciate are normally very positive we're, we're saying this this was the least thoughtful most narcissistic blah 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 i won't go into what they're saying but mm-hmm. but a, a very large negative reaction to what connor was saying about himself and spirituality mm-hmm. and so that's why we're like oh we should revisit this because yeah, yeah. in our audience at least, this was more controversial than most of the stuff we talk about. Sure. So I was the one who wanted
1: to have him on. You didn't the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, you were not into it. Uh, And my thought was, I was open to the idea that Connor had had an Eckhart Tolle experience. So Eckhart Tolle, if you don't know him, wrote The Power of Now and the New Earth many years ago. And as far as I can tell since then, has remained in this
2: slow-moving state of being Yeah, but unlike the Dalai Lama who got there through five hours of meditation, basically was suicidal until one day had borderline a mental break and then came out of it a, a very Zen-esque guru. And hasn't gone back as far as one can
1: tell. Yeah. It just sort of sl- like absorbs questions for 15 seconds at a time, and it could be a performance, mm-hmm. but has kept it going for so long that I was like, wow, can a spontaneous transformation like that occur? And if so, Connor is claiming to have had this experience. Mm. I wonder if that's the case. Now, there were plenty of things that sort of tipped me in the direction of like, it doesn't seem to, but the fact that he fasted for 40 days Mm -hmm. as a prior bodybuilder, to me, showed a complete reorientation of priorities. Mm. At the time. At the time. At the time. And then, we spoke to him even 30 days after that, he hadn't had sex and, and he was someone who had been, the validation conversation that we had with him, I think never really got to this, but in my opinion, he was hyper-driven by validational sex. Like somebody who goes out, anyone who goes out and has sex uh, several times a week with several different people. The reason that I believe that that is validational in its nature is because the orgasm itself is, mo- is probably better at least half the time by yourself with your own <laughs> with your own hand in the privacy of your own bedroom. So you're not doing it for just the physical pleasure or the need to release.
2: No, or if you were, what you would do is quickly just hone in on whoever gave you the best orgasm, and exactly. that's you see the most. Exactly,
1: yeah. the fact that it's a variety of different people and the excitement that one feels if you were to dig into that, as I have in my own
2: experience and my friends have as yeah, well. Yeah, I was gonna say no knock to Connor by the way. This is most guys at some point yeah, in their yeah, lives yeah, yeah, go yeah. through this phase where new for the sake of new is. Fabulous. Yes. And some people would argue biologically, evolutionarily, you're triggered to always have that to some degree. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to pick on Connor. No, here. no, no. But uh, that that if one expressly cares about pleasure, things like
1: massages and uh, finding one person who is an expert at uh, tantra, at tantra, like that sort of stuff is would be the direction that one went for the the need of that pleasure. And mm-hmm. the variety tends to say something about the type of man one is, that one is so attractive. And that is is the thrill in some ways. So we didn't really get to that. And I, I thought that he would uh, see that in himself. He disagreed. He didn't see that in himself. But then we had the conversation and my struggle during the conversation was I thought that he would have what felt like to me more profound insight into his condition. And I thought that he would have stepped away or at least have had some interesting answer to why continue to promote bang energy drinks? Mm -hmm. Why continue to lift weights and aim to be 195 or 210 weight? Like, why hit a number
2: on a scale? Uh, No, there could have been, I mean, we'll talk about this after our call because we don't have time, but there could have been a Tim Ferriss-style story Mm -hmm. involving an early memory that got repressed Mm -hmm. that led to so much that he's now realized has occurred. Yeah, there could have Mm -hmm. been a um, seismic shift in his views on the world based on uncovering some sort of traumatic memory just wasn't the case yes and so i thought that there would be more of that and on the conversation
1: i was surprised now during the conversation my mode and maybe i need to adjust this because because there's a bit of interviewing that is going on is i'm trying to see it from his perspective as best as i can and in the i'm I'm trying to like step in his worldview and maybe i don't get it and i don't claim to be enlightened so for me to step inside his head i have zero ability to Mm -hmm. do that i kind of have to take him at his at what he's saying, but upon reflection, certainly, and it was almost immediately after we finished, I was like, "A lot of that didn't add up." Mm-hmm. Uh, having overcome all trauma without any sort of revisiting experience seems very rare to me. We yeah. talk about Tim
2: Ferriss. <laughs> no, and I think I think because uh, I don't want to just I don't want to just bash on Connor. I'm I appreciate not yeah, I appreciate him coming in from our for, for <laughs> reflecting on our ourselves mm-hmm. as conversationalists. I think we both came away from that thinking, "Okay, Ben doesn't so much have a problem with." disagreeing, but potentially needs to figure out how to phrase his questions (laughs) in a way that gives the person a chance to come out the other side with a good answer. Mm Because I think I was, to your point, I was critical before he came on. I was critical while he was on. Mm -hmm. And while I appreciate the questions or the comments that were saying, hey, I'm glad Ben asked critical questions. As I was reflecting, I thought I could have asked him in more words. Mm -hmm. And I could have asked him in such a way that I gave him a chance to process and give a thoughtful answer. Instead of sometimes he was just like, well, you can't just give up all money and move to a farm. I was like, well, why not? Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't really give a a guest a chance to have a thoughtful response because they're just put on the spot. So that's where I think I could improve myself, and I I plan to work on that. I think from your perspective, combination being less confrontational than I am or less comfortable with confrontation, combination feeling me next to you being, I think, overtly critical, you maybe in hindsight would change how you carried yourself as well. Well, I don't know. I, I actually, I have been thinking about this. I don't know my proper
1: position as a conversational, if I invite someone to come on, because we've talked about having people on who we disagree with far more mm. than this, who like we, we sit, I'm pretty sure, on mm. opposite views of things that I feel strongly about. And it feels strange for me to invite them on and then be, confrontational, call them out for lying, and I'm not talking about Connor in this case, no, no. Uh, to say that you know you are
2: not who you claim to be is a, I don't know how to go about that. I haven't quite figured out. I think the goal out. is to do it in a friendly manner. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd like to have a, get to the point where people who are watching this know that if there's something I disagree with, I'm going to mm-hmm. ask a question about it. I don't want to be, I honestly have no interest in being someone who brings people on and then that person can promote whatever they want. A, just say a, whatever yeah. they want. And I'm just like, yeah. All right, cool. And in my head, I'm going, I disagree with this, but I'm not going to say anything to please the guest. Mm-hmm. I'd rather just not have guests and talk you and I. Sure. But I do think there's a way, like I said, to be literally just disagree as much or more than I did with Connor, but in a way that's friendly and doesn't feel like it's intact. Just it's an exploration, which is what I really want. Is like, yeah, maybe you're an enlightened guru. Maybe I have the wrong impression. I'll try to bring that humility here. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm going to ask you why it seems hard to believe and I want to give you the opportunity to prove me wrong mm-hmm. or to kind of, yeah, like prove that I'm <laughs> not wrong, in which case I'll continue to, in a nice way, dig into stuff. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That that seems to be the way that I would want to conduct a conversation. Sure. Especially if it's going to be public. Sure. So my, my uh, conclusion
1: with regard to how I thought and felt and what I think at the end of the day is... Uh, my sense of Connor, and I'm completely open to his, his experience of himself is certainly more firsthand than mine, but yeah, I do yeah. think that there are times where people can see things about you that might not be obvious, and this is true of everybody. Mm-hmm. I think that he had a peak experience, and I think he had an incredibly long-lasting psychedelic after thing that got him through 40 days of fasting, 70 days of just like abstaining from sex or anything, which was, I think, very, very huge for him. But I do think that he has come back down into the ego and the personality, not quite the same as when he went into this experience, but that is not nearly as close to that peak as he was. I also think that he likely had some. uh, There were moments with the, we didn't talk deeply about it. um, His strategy for getting people to go to enlightenment was faking his own death. And not only is that to me cruel, and I was trying to understand his perspective of, you know, it's all just a game, so it doesn't matter. Um, to me, you know, we're still very, a lot of these people don't recognize it's a game. And so it's cruel to those who think yeah, yeah. it's like a little kid is playing this game super intensely and you're like, ha ha, screwed you. <laughs> like,
2: well, I, I do think so. And I, so, and first of all, by the way, we're not endorsing ayahuasca, a water fast. celibacy, yeah. so like a lot of stuff is dangerous if unsupervised. But for me, one of the things i I experienced on ayahuasca was this idea of what I was calling faction, where yeah. instead of thought and action, it was just one thing I'd have a thought and I'd be doing it. So I'd literally be like, I have to pee. And before I had thought, I was up and walking. Mm-hmm. And I was almost observing myself doing that. And I think then in hindsight, if you did something crazy or something really counterculture, you'd have to justify it. Yeah. And so there is a chance that it wasn't that premeditated mm-hmm. to do the fake suicide, to give away your car. It, even if it, might was, have been a even cognitive- if it was, it
1: was... Like, how many people were enlightened as a result of that? I think there are probably more effective
2: ways to go about enlightening a large group of people. Sure. I'm just saying, depending on how much ayahuasca is still in in your system affecting your brain, that's not Mm -hmm. even how thoughts work. Mm -hmm. It's not like you plan, take an action, and then the reason it happened is because of what you think. A lot Mm -hmm. of times, uh, things are just occurring and your brain is trying to, like, process Mm why they're happening. So Mm -hmm. I could imagine, if I were deep in the throes of ayahuasca, giving away my car, than being asked two days ago, two days later like why I gave up my car and having to come up with the reason. But like who knows how accurate that was to in the moment when think when thought and action really does for me at least get very muddled. Yeah. And it's much less clear than premeditated thought action yeah you know what i'm saying
1: so to wrap i think ultimately it's a time will tell thing with anybody who goes through any sort of peak experience whether that's landmark forum uh it's psychedelic thing or just realizes something in themselves and they need to go to the gym and and exercise more it's like okay we'll see how big this breakthrough is in one year's time and i think the measure of enlightenment to a degree is of course subjective but also the love and compassion that you show to the people around Mm you so um that that will be sort of if when I look back in a year from now was he was he onto something wasn't mm-hmm. he to what degree that would be what I look to is like how does he treat those people around him and yeah. that's
2: true of myself and of I was anybody. gonna say it's not yeah. that's not unique to Connor no I, I went to Landmark Forum I got super hyped up I was having a peak yeah, experience yeah. I was like I'm never gonna feel jealousy again I'm gonna be kind to everyone All <laughs> a week later well, I was in an open relationship at the time a week later I was jealous like that that's uh you could have caught me the day of and I would have said some crazy stuff on camera about how yeah. Changed and fixed, and it wouldn't have been enlightened, yeah. but it would have been the landmark forum terms for him. And then a month later, it was almost like I didn't go. So, yeah. I do think there's just a natural tendency for everyone to get really hyped when they're in the moment with ayahuasca or Tony Robbins or whatever it might be. So, it's certainly no fault to that because I think everybody's guilty of that. I know. I,
1: well, that's the thing. It's I can't even be critical because I've walked out of these things before and been like,
2: you're looking at the new Charlie, yeah, and yeah. then a week later, it's the same old shit. All right. So Tim Ferriss. Yeah. You want, did you get the chance to listen to it? I listened to almost all of it. Yeah. Okay. Up until the very end. So, yeah. So for people who don't know, Tim Ferriss, very famous influencer, wrote For <laughs> Our Work Week, has a, one of the biggest podcasts. He has hinted at in the past a trauma, but came out for the first time ever and talked about it. He was regularly sexually abused from the age of two to four by his babysitter's son. And he didn't go into detail, but he said, just picture the worst, the worst things you can imagine. That's what was happening to me. He completely blacked out every memory he had between zero and five for most of his life, such that at age six didn't know that, this and at age thirty yeah. had no idea anything that had occurred before his fifth or sixth birthday. Basically, but has a, had a lot of neuroses, very quick to anger, had some cutting experiences in high school, loves combat sports, addicted to caffeine, didn't know where any of it came from, just thought that his he had bad brain chemistry is mm-hmm. what I think he blamed prior. Then he. Went on a Vespasana... I should also say he was suicidal at various points of his life. Oh, yeah. And didn't know why. And actually has previously blamed his brain chemistry. Just said, bad bad roll of the dice. Because he didn't know that this had occurred. Did ayahuasca and remembered the trauma. Mm -hmm. Relived it, but didn't get triggered by it. And at the end of the experience, says he basically put the trauma back in the box, didn't address it. Knew that it happened. Yeah. So now for the first time in his life, I think at like 35 is like, oh, the shit, this did happen, but has no thoughts about it, continues with the existing neuroses, just, just carries on with his life, and then goes on a vipassana retreat while fasted and on mushrooms, and basically has a psychotic break, so much so that he thinks without the guidance he'd had from the shamans there, he would never have returned. Mm-hmm. And that was the point where he had the trauma in his mind again. And then he goes on to talk about everything he's done since to try to basically put himself back together and how this one root cause is the symptom of basically i think he says like 11 major neuroses or problems in his life and and uh just talks about the journey that he went on so Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's the context do you want to start you want me to start go ahead uh so he has a couple a couple interesting things that the, the first thing i wrote down which i think is something i hadn't known or thought about if you do just men and women together boys and girls together 14% 14% of children are sexually abused. He says and his guest who was also raped by her stepdad I think from age 9 to 12 mm-hmm. the co-host for this basically he the stepfather said I will murder your mom and your brother if you tell anyone. Yeah. And so they both said it's way higher. Yeah. No, they both said you deal with shame that you and you feel completely alone.
1: Well I was just going to say it's way higher than 14% because I don't Tim's not in that count. Several people I know aren't in that count sure. like it,
2: that to say that it's half seems generous. I think it's, I think it's, 14. well, even, even let's say it's 14. It's one and eight. Yeah, yeah. I think what they were saying is when they were kids, when they were, when Tim was six or four, mm-hmm. when she was 11, it was happening. She thought she was the only person in the yeah, world yeah. it was happening to. She, she mentions that in, she was reading like a dear Abby and someone wrote in about being molested. And it was the first time in her entire life she'd ever encountered anyone in the world that this had happened to. And yeah, she yeah. cut it out and put it under her bed because she wasn't alone And so I thought that was the first thing worth highlighting is an incredibly widespread problem. And to, to them at least, I'm not an expert on this at all, and neither are they, but they're just sharing their experience. Part of the damage to the psyche is the shame and not being able to share this and thinking that you're damaged because it happened to you or broken. And they said, both of them said that one of the best things that they ever did for themselves mentally was start to share it with the people in their lives and see people didn't run away or a few of them as broken or anything mm-hmm. like that. I thought that was really interesting just to think about how widespread of a problem this thing is that when you're growing up, you really do think either doesn't exist or happens on the fringes. You know yeah. what I
1: mean? Well, Tim closed with it. She said, what is one thing that you hope people get out of this? And he said that they're not alone. Yeah. And I thought, oh, we can take these off now. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that that was fascinating because the there's a line that the number one line in marketing that you can say, and you'll see it in every sales letter is you're not alone. And and then they'll sell you a product Mm -hmm. off the back of it. But what they've tapped into is this just need that people have to not feel alone in their suffering and Mm -hmm. their experience. And the idea that compassion is like suffering with someone is one of the most generous things that you can do with somebody is Mm -hmm. to have compassion for them. I, I was struck by that as well. Like the, the aloneness being such a huge part of the of the difficulty of all of these things.
2: You know, and I, th- I think the thing is, when you are an adult, and you've gone through this, or you haven't gone through this, and you hear, okay, let's say 15%, 25% of the population has had this happen, you understand the numbers, right? You go, okay, cool, my front brain can process that. But it doesn't necessarily make you feel less alone. Mm-hmm. And what makes you feel less alone is when you go to your friend or your family or your spouse or whatever and you say, hey, this happened to me. Yeah. And even if it's never happened to them, they go, I love you. Yeah. I know this happened to you and I'm not running from you and I'm not disgusted by you. And that that experience of like sharing it is infinitely more helpful than recognizing you're not alone because you heard the stats. Yeah. You know what I mean? hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah, I thought that... uh one
1: mad credit to him because clearly i've I watched interviews years ago where he vaguely he's like yeah this is something i can't really talk about here yeah, <laughs> so yeah. clearly it's something that he's been aware of and struggling with and trying and so finally posted it the fact that's a huge step forward for him yeah uh i also saw and i what what i've experienced because i talked about this a little bit on the podcast is he was spent about 20 minutes on the events and then about 2 hours on the tools and the intellectualizations yeah, yeah, yeah. and i don't blame him at all but i was most moved and struck by his personal recounting mm-hmm. and to me the tools are important but that's that's the cliff notes as far yeah, as yeah. i'm concerned like the point that he made you're not alone he was most powerful in those first 20 minutes yeah. Uh, and I think that's where he helped the most people. And of course, it's like, okay, now what? That's super freaking useful. But and I don't, I don't blame him at all for this. But I, even just as I was listening, I was like, what helps other people is, is literally you telling your story. Yeah, yeah. And then also here's here's the link to some therapies
2: at the bottom. But like, well, uh, can I say that's that's kind of what you just did though, right? You're like, I've had stuff happen to me. Well, I talked about I talked the about it on the podcast previously, probably two months ago. No, it was like eight months ago. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like so. Do you want to talk about your experience? I don't uh, want to put you on the spot. Have I not? I will. I just don't want to repeat myself. Is, is you said it
1: once eight months ago, right? I, so I thought we talked about it at length. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I need to, to protect some of the parties involved. Uh, I was molested when I was eight to, I don't know exactly the ages. It was over the period. Uh, I don't want to say much more than that. Um, nobody needs to go on a, on a rampage trying to figure out. Doxing <laughs> spree. Doxing spree uh and my uh, dude it was f- fucking uncanny listening to him talk about his experience yeah,
2: yeah. so what's your experience been uh,
1: just ridiculously similar so the order of of him i'm trying to think of the things that that really was like oh my gosh um one putting it in a box mm-hmm. being like this didn't happen or i was actually where he was my whole life after his experience because i was old enough to know that it didn't happen i was like it just didn't matter Mm -hmm. Other people are affected by these things. And like, I didn't think about it, but once every six years Mm -hmm. and I had no feeling about it and it was, uh, you know, whatever other people, (laughs) I'm just fortunate to have this constitution that this didn't bother me. Uh, and then I had an ayahuasca experience (laughs) that was the most difficult night of my life. It was the worst thing ever. And it was a embodied psycho like psycho experience of what that felt like that I didn't feel at mm-hmm. the time. It was the worst experience of my life. Um and I think I I talked about this in some, but it started with and it's the layers were incredible because I take I take am I repeating myself if I said this all in the cast? I think, let it rip. Okay. <laughs> I told the story. Uh so we we take the ayahuasca and I go in this weekend I'm like I really am just here for the person that I came with. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just I'm supporting. <laughs> I take it. 15 minutes in, I go down. Yeah. Uh, I have my my thing in my hand. It's this plastic thing. I I come to and I crack it in between my hands, and I I don't realize that this, my puke bucket is just in pieces. Yeah. And they're like, help him. And next thing I know, I'm on my knee trying to be carried out of the thing. I've never been like this debilitated. 15 minutes after taking it. So I'm separate from the circle the whole night and there's one guy that's with me. And as it's going down, um, it, I'm it's horrible. All uh, indescribably horrible. I'm lost in this sea of red and confusion and terror and illness. And at one point, I hear this voice like tell Shane you're gay. Tell him you're gay. I was like, "But I'm not." But she said, so "You have to tell him. You have to tell him." I was like, "But I'm, why would I say it? I'm not. I don't am I really am, am I and it was like it was so horrible for about 30 seconds. And I did because I didn't want it to be true. Is was like, is this the case? Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, Shane, I'm gay. He goes, oh, that's cool, man. I was like, wait, that's not. And then it, it immediately didn't feel right coming mm-hmm. out. I was like, that's not true. It's not. I, and then I just broke down and I told him, I said, Shane, I was I was molested and That was the beginning of these layers of uh, things that I hadn't experienced because, of course, one of the things I went, oh, I must have wanted this. I'm, you know, therefore I am gay, you know, Mm -hmm. and and this is why this happened. Um, But that evening was – going through all the layers being like this is this is my body whose body is this like like total confusion of of like wait. A and it was it was horrible it was it was so uncomfortable the whole time yeah is I thought,
2: similar to tim did you go through disassociation total
1: disassociation i was looking at my body i was like whose is this this is me like it didn't uh, yeah. i was coming back to my body for the first time um and so in any event that evening went on and i was clearly shugging up and th- it took me time beyond normal to like get myself back together uh and then i've continued to do those sorts of things and kind of from that experience i shared with uh people i think i probably after that was willing to have similar to what tim said like this happened on the podcast um and told various people in my life, and and have, and have hit a level of understanding uh, where at this point I, I actually want to have a conversation with this person because my understanding of their story, as brief as it is, is that they were also victimized in their mm-hmm. childhood. Um, and to me, I just see like this cascading chain of hurt and suffering. And mm-hmm. I and I fortunately never went on to do anything like that. But if I look at the relationships in my life, what I've I've now been doing MDMA a lot. Uh, it's got its tendrils and everything. And so I related to that with Tim. Tim was just like, you know, there's a million things that it's affected. Me too. And I didn't recognize that. Hmm. Um, So I can, I mean, do you want me to how? how? Sure. I don't even know what it's affected. Uh, Okay. From the top. (laughs) Uh (laughs) So uh, this, this was just very recent in MDMA. So I'm still, this is, this is news to me. Uh, You know how I hate going home? Mm -hmm. I fucking hate my house. Yeah that's why so i didn't know this i have um and i spent years like okay i went to college and then i was like i'm going abroad and i'm going further abroad and then i'm going to california uh, and i'm never like not going home for thanksgiving and the reason which i truly believed up until months ago was like i hate plane rides and i hate you know this and the Mm -hmm. food isn't the best and like it's just not uh and that house is almost like if you've ever seen stranger things that there's a world and an upside down that both exist in my mind. So I can see my healthy, happy house, mm. but there's also an upside down house that exists in my psyche. Uh, and it's horrible and it's, it's, you know, filled with shadows and, and all of these things. That's where it's occurred. And I feel especially that way
2: about my bedroom. Mm. Um, and I'll just cut in wasn't your family no, no one no, no. that lived there i just want to make sure yeah, people yeah, yeah. recognize not your dad not your brother yeah, not your sister yeah, yeah, yeah. not your mom this was just someone who happened to have come to yes. your house yes. so i'll just say that because i know you'll <laughs> you'll want that said yeah so
1: um so yeah so that there's this there's this upside down dark world feeling about my house that has kept me away from mm. there uh it impacted and probably every one of my important relationships uh so i mean i can start at the top my dad i i remember telling him uh and he didn't do anything wrong but he sunk because i told him when i was younger he just sunk in his chair oh my god you know and the way that i interpreted that was i fucked up Mm. like i can't i can't do this i completely fucked up he's ashamed of me and i know that that's not the case and he didn't even say any like he about that
2: um but some part of he was upset with himself probably for allowing it to happen he wasn't upset with you
1: and which is crazy because there's nothing like what could he have done in that moment but of course i didn't even know that i felt this way at some at some level all of this is deep deep down i'm completely unaware of all this um so i think that's contributed i've talked about to uh strife with my dad and arguing with him and uh it is easier for me to be combative with him than it is for me to be sensitive Mm. with him, because the sensitive feelings are closer to those feelings of, I fucked up, I'm so sorry, like total shame. Relationships in terms of intimacy, I realized that there is a, um, and I can do it now, there is a guardedness. I have never fully broken down in front of anyone. And that, I think, goes back to that first experience and telling my dad and beyond that, in that I was the older brother, am the older brother, and viewed my job as protecting the family Mm -hmm. and I was and again he didn't do anything wrong but like I last time I was on MDMA I had this memory of being six years old going to my dad's baseball game he used to play baseball my sister came with me and she uh, we had this box and there was this eight year old and eight to six is a big difference he was being mean and he was saying this is you know we built a fort he's like this is mine now and he tried to claim it and i had taken karate and he was hurting my sister and i punched him in the nose mm. and i gave him a bloody nose and he ran away crying and my dad told that story so many times mm. and i was like this is it yeah this, this is, is how you is, get love this is my job like i am i am the uh the protector And the feeling of the upside down house was like, I didn't protect this house. I didn't protect um, myself. My dad is hurt and disappointed that this happened. That feeling of just having failed and needing to redeem myself, to make up for it in some way. Um, And then also being the the people that are most difficult are my family. Mm. So like, how do I, you know, I need to make up for it, but I can't make up for it in the actual root cause. I'll just go start a big YouTube channel. Yeah, you know yeah, I yeah. mean, like, I'll just go make some other, you know, I'll make some girl fall in love with me. Um, I will redeem myself anywhere but the place where I feel that I've failed. Mm. Um, there was another one that I was going down. But in, an, in any event, it's had, me, like, a, a tendrils in everything. And I'm constantly surprised that I've done MDMA a handful of times and I had this ayahuasca experience that i come back it's like holy shit you're fucking kidding me yeah, like yeah, yeah, more, more fucking more um, but i still get more you yeah. know and this last time was like oh wow that's why you that's why you hate going home yeah um, but the good news is that and i oh, i remember the last one is that i and i think this will be my next big one is i can't break down in front of other people which is that feeling of my dad like seeing me like that mm um and i've and i can cry you know what i mean i cry all, semi-frequently at this yeah, point yeah. but there's a difference between crying and breaking down mm-hmm. and breaking down would be a complete collapse like a, like inability to stop myself because even when i'm crying i go i could turn this off if i yeah, need yeah, to yeah, yeah. you know what i mean like I'm, I'm allowing these tears these are tears that i've chosen yeah. to allow at this they moment. have my blessing yes
2: Well, dude, I'm I'm not Oprah. I'm absolutely not gonna guide you there. I think, as your friend, my job is not to do that either. (laughs) You know, Oprah would like look into your eyes and touch you, and you start to cry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna leave it totally (laughs) up to you to to do it at your speed. So one, I think that's
1: uh, a a big learning for me is that uh, patience, like the speed at which my head moves, is a hundred times faster than the speed at which my heart, my body moves. It does feel to when I am in these scenarios, it feels like my emotional body is uh, not perpetually, but disabled. You know what I mean? It's like needs extra help, like needs a teacher to sit there and be incredibly, incredibly patient such that all of the tools and the tactics and the tricks and the shortcuts that have worked for business and all of these other things, like leave that shit behind. Mm. What this part of you needs is like you to sit still, maybe on some mushrooms or some stuff, take a couple deep breaths, and accept that after eight hours, you might have gone this far and that can be wonderful. Yeah. Um, that there's not a race to the end of this. The race is exactly the problem. The race is what made me race to all of these other conclusions about how I had to quick have the answers to everything. No, it's cool that, you know, I'm great. You know, he was upset, just didn't bother me. It's like, yeah. no, I'm going to have to go
2: very, very fucking slow with sure. all of this. Well, you did. So you said sit, but then you said sit with psilocybin. I thought it was interesting because mm-hmm. Tim, Tim basically and the woman he was talking to, the woman he's talking to has done 30 years of talk therapy. And yeah. they both agreed you get there faster with psychedelics. Sure. I was interested because uh, Tim recommends almost the exact same thing as you do, mm-hmm. which is he started with ayahuasca. Now he thinks that that's <laughs> too, much. too <laughs> much, which is kind of exactly where you're at. right? Yeah. Like you're like, I wouldn't, we, you, the first thing you'd ever done, you never smoked a cigarette. Yeah, no yeah, was yeah. What we did at ayahuasca and you would not recommend that to other people. Same thing with Tim the things he recommends now are MDMA, psilocybin, parts therapy, and cognitive behavior therapy, mm-hmm. which is actually, I think, exactly what you found most helpful as well, right? Yes.
1: Uh, it, it was uncanny, <laughs> the things that he was saying. I was like, oh yeah, ayahuasca completely, well actually ayahuasca didn't, it was the vipassana after, but uh, I don't regret having done ayahuasca. I don't want to scare anyone from it, but if you know that you have this in your history, I think MDMA Slash psilocybin is the place mm-hmm. to start. Uh, MDMA is a warm blanket as you go through it, and ayahuasca is just like a you're just thrown into it with no ability to yeah. escape. So, I will be for the foreseeable future not doing ayahuasca. It will mark a large point of growth when I return, and I know I will one day. Um, I will know when I'm like, no, I've I've handled this aspect and I'm ready for ways of growth that are not related to like healing this this wound or this trauma that this is just, this is way too big a gun for at mm-hmm. this point. Um,
2: but yeah, MDMA, psilocybin for me for the-
1: Do you have anything feature.
2: else? So I, in my impression was those are the big four for Tim. So, and I know you don't want to recommend tools, but I do think there are probably yeah. people listening who- No, I,
1: I think tools are important. Well, so, I think yeah. there's
2: probably people listening who have had things happen. They know they happen- <clears throat> They can't get access to an MDMA therapist. Dude, it's it's such a shame how expensive this stuff is,
1: I have to and say. And how illegal it is. I'm, I mean, even the good therapists are $250 an hour.
2: Yeah. Um, so, it's the thing. So, let's say that, I, let's say that I was yeah. a victim of child abuse, child, sexual abuse. Yeah. And I'm listening to this podcast, and I go, okay, it sounds terrifying, but I'm ready to integrate. Yeah. What should I do?
1: Save up your money, or maybe you're someone who has money, and find... Uh, an mdma person with experience ask around unfortunately this is i can't tell you i want to tell you trust me like i want to be yeah. the person who uh who does this but they're they're marching forward um or even if you're like i'm not comfortable with that even micro doses of psilocybin which can be 0.1 to 0.2 or 3 grams depending on the individual yeah. Um, and then sit alone in your room with the intention to just explore this. That's that's a low enough dose that it shouldn't like take you too mm-hmm. horribly deep, but might you'll you'll probably have new insights, new thoughts um, that'll start to like ease it. What I think of as uh, the psychedelic experiences are just so valuable. They're like sprints. You cover so much freaking ground mm-hmm. when you do eight hours of a of a macro dose, and then weekly I go talk to a family integration parts therapist all this kind of stuff and that's that's just keeping up the practice for me got it um but into recognizing that that this shit is expensive if i look back at the amount of money i've spent it's thousands and thousands of dollars and i know mm. that not everybody has that so uh, the, what i will say is that the right therapist is going to be important because there's so therapy is like chiropractic is like everything in the world and that there's a, such a wide array of skill sets mm. so you want someone that has experience with what you would call trauma the last thing that i'll say is that um the what reminded me of tim is that uh you know i hate the word victim and hate this and hate this and that's always my experience every time i'm in i'm in a psychedelic zone and it's like this comes up i'm like not this shit again we're done with this shit like Mm. we're not going to revisit this fucking molehill and make a mountain out of it i will not allow it like move along Mm. next up and uh i think that that's very common in people is that uh I just don't want it to be the deal that it apparently is. And I'm continually frustrated when it comes up. And I go, fucking God, <laughs> like you're supposed to get through this faster. Uh, and I, he echoed a similar sentiment of like, I can't believe that this was 30 years ago. It doesn't matter. Like you, You've moved along. Um, and I think a lot of people will find reasons. He had some, I have some, uh, why their situation doesn't qualify as traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still... I'm not totally convinced that mine is dramatic. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I've, I, half the time, I think I'm making this. Not that it happened. I'm yeah. making the severity of it up. Got it. I'm like, you. this is just a game you're playing with yourself. This isn't even Got that, it. that that important.
2: But if something happened to you when you were like 16, <laughs> that's not dramatic, right? I'm asking for a I, friend. asking
1: for a friend. I think as I've gone through, and I have stuff in my life at various points that has been upsetting, uh, certainly... And, it, uh, and it, this doesn't make it not, and I wouldn't want to rule it out, because what I what I do is because I'm all right on the cusp. And she says, you know, before the age of ten is uh, is when it really affects. us was like, well. I was practically there, so I was not. So <laughs> yes. the difference. And I was fast learner. I'm basically 13. Yeah, uh, but also that that is the excuse that I use to minimize it is my age. Uh, constant, I constantly go back to the age, and I go back to the severity. I go, well, Tim had even worse things happen to him. So the severity and my age are what I go to, and I think that that's just something to be aware of. That people yeah, always yeah. go the severity and the age, and what is worst is, uh, it's the shame and the inability. If it's something that you haven't talked about or told for many years, that's, that's sign enough that it's a massive fucking thing in your psyche.
2: Yeah, it does um, seem like the psyche does form when you're young yes. The, that, like, yes, the it's crazy the stuff that I've come to through my own psychedelic use, which by the way, I just wanna clarify, mm-hmm. we're not doctors <laughs> and also you shouldn't do anything illegal. So if you're gonna do psilocybin, <laughs> you should go to synthesis retreat in Amsterdam. I've never been, but <laughs> it's illegal there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so don't do anything illegal. We're not doctors, uh, but when I've done my own experiences, it's shocking that the stuff that comes up is like so innocuous. It just happened to happen when I was six or four yep. or whatever it is. Yep. And I was like, this, this fight I had, or like this thing I got caught doing, or this totally inconsequential experience. This is shaping me. But it's just amazing. If the same thing happened at twenty five, it wouldn't move the needle in terms of who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. But when it happens at age four, it just does. Yep. Yep, I
1: think age is a huge one. Uh, kids lack the ability, clearly. And also some of the conclusions that you draw emotionally at that age. Like my dad looked down and that meant the fucking world to me, you know? And, and yeah, yeah. I didn't even know it, you know it. We have
2: a friend that had an experience <coughs> that I don't even think he's like interpreted correctly between him and his mom, but mm-hmm. his takeaway is that he'll never ask for help in anything ever. Yeah, yeah. And like I see it carry through in his life, basically, yeah. with rare exception. And it's just a thing that happened when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, wasn't a sexual abuse. It was just a yeah, thing yeah. that happened. And to his detriment, to this day, just like cannot ask for assistance with anything.
1: Yeah. So, and this is why I don't know that one has to. And and I, you hear some people say hey, the story doesn't matter, and I agree. It's to a degree. It's you don't want to have to go back. But the people that I have seen who have made the biggest strides have brought the past to conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, I know few people like Eckhart Tolle who just seem to skip that stage and just go, who needs to revisit the past? I'm enlightened. Uh, it seems to be a very common thing is like if you haven't gone back to your childhood, and I mean several f- freaking times because it comes out in layers. I've done this this one particular incident, well, several incidents, but over and over and over again. Um, there's more to be done. And the good news is it's not like a chore. It's like there's there is something on the other side that is hopefully better. And Tim talks about being connected with his body. And I see that
2: as, um, the sort of the prize. No, it can, it can sound, it can sound really daunting because Tim's basically saying, I didn't know any of this happened. Then I went on this Vesposito retreat with mushrooms. And then since then it's been the obsession of my life for five years. But he also says, I've never been happier. I've never felt more free emotionally. I've never felt lighter. Mm -hmm. So I think it's easy to hear the process and go, this is daunting. I'm just going to keep this locked away. Yeah. And yeah, I think everybody who's gone through the struggle seems to say it was worth it to process it.
1: Yeah. So. And, and just the last thing that I'll close on to your point is, uh, there's a handful of things that our society recognizes as being traumatic and sexual abuse is one of them. And we're increasingly doing so. And it has made, you know, the, the reaction of people around me, which is, uh, is this has somewhat made it easier to do, but to your point, there are things in all of our past that aren't going to get classified by everyone around us as traumatic. Mm-hmm. And they fr- they very well, they, they are. <laughs> you know they, they affected your psyche in a very, very important way. And you drew conclusions about the entire world because of it. And if you were to share it with somebody, they might go, well, that's not a big deal. But that- Yeah, shake it off. The subjective experience of that is so much more important because it's your rules that you're mm-hmm. living by. It's your subconscious rules that are driving your whole life. So I, I do think that there's going to be a shift in society where we recognize the absolute fragility, but also the resilience of the psyches of children. It's mm-hmm. like they're fragile,
2: but then they form these incredible coping mechanisms to go through life and yeah, like operate you, really well. Yeah. The problem is the coping mechanism is great at the time. Yeah. But then you don't shake it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and to be clear, if I'd never done ayahuasca, I would still have one of the top lives in the history, mm-hmm. like such a sort of fortunate thing. Um, and this is, this is something that I think people will struggle with. I struggled with it, which is like, it's so good for me. Um, my life is so incredible and so good. It can't have a bad thing in mm. it. You know, I can't feel sorry for myself. There are people without water. We don't have time for this. So these are uh, traps that I've continually fallen into, which just slows me down from actually like feeling this shit, addressing it in my own life, feeling better, and then being able to even help uh, more people.
3: All right, let's rip through some questions. All right. First one is sometimes I like to tell my friends about charisma on command and it usually takes a bit before they're on board with what it's all about. I think this usually comes from the fact that people don't initially feel comfortable when hearing that someone is trying to be charismatic in Mm. a sort of calculated manner. I'm curious to know if that impression ever affects your business or how you tell your friends about what you do for a living. Totally. It affects our business.
1: Yeah. So and this is true of any kind of personal development in most regards whether you're talking about health and fitness or you're talking about growing a business rather than discuss it with them i think the best thing you can do is send them the raw material send them a video that you think that they'll like so for instance when i was talking about you know you got to do the 4 hour work week man it's incredible nobody was interested in hearing my description of it but if i could get people to read the first chapter of the book they'd carry themselves through it so number 1 if you want your friends on board send them a video don't don't describe it but yeah, it's definitely something that that slows our business down. There's a stigma against uh, working on one's personality because you are expected to just have a magical personality. Kind of like guys are expected to just be good at sex. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's one of no, those probably, things we're that- we're Probably like our view count versus sh- shares on Facebook is yeah. probably so disproportionate. Because yeah. it's not, when you're losing weight, you're so lauded. Yeah. You're going, hey guys, I'm losing weight. I've lost 20 pounds, 25 more to go. Here's a video I saw. Everyone's like, yes, you're amazing. Yeah. And if you're like, I was shy, And I'm getting better at it. And my relationships are getting better. And here's a video where Charlie talks about peaky blinders. Yeah. Like no one wants to share that because no one's going to be in your comments like, yeah.
1: I'm insecure too. (laughs) Yeah. They're all
2: just going to be like, boo, be yourself. Yes. Um, So yeah, I think there's definitely, weirdly enough, even compared to other areas of self-improvement, there's a stigma around it's okay to lose weight. It's okay to go to the gym, but it's not okay to work on your ability to be confident in social situations. Yep.
1: Yes. And there's weird subsets of that that are okay, like learning presentation for a business meeting. Public speaking, totally fine. Okay. (laughs) Right. Um, And I think it has to do with those things which our society attributes to identity and says that they are innate about you. So the way that you behave in a social setting, that's who you are, quote unquote. That's not what it really is, is just a series of habits that you picked up in middle school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, No, that's who you are. And so people freak out when you start trying to change who you are, which is, ultimately silly but how do we deal with it volume we just try to get a lot of eyeballs on and there's enough people that are willing to take that uh slightly uncomfortable leap but we don't get a lot of like referrals to charisma university for instance yeah um except when somebody's gone made that change and people are like what the heck yep that's the one case where the proof is in the pudding yep um but yeah
2: We're kind of tight on time, so we're going to answer these questions (laughs) fast. It's not because we don't like them. It's because our memory card is capping out. I'm going to buy a bigger one. Um, Next one is, I've just learned
3: that occasionally I'll watch a motivational video and feel pumped for a week or even a month, but then either forget all about it or move on to something else after a month. It almost feels like it's a manipulated market that sells its consumers the hope of a better future.
1: (laughs) Almost like, yeah.
3: (laughs) If you were in a similar
2: situation, how would you stabilize your core personal values? Dude, if you can get motivation for a month from one YouTube video, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I would just watch one every first of the month. <laughs> I think most people watch those videos and are hyped for 15 minutes. Yeah. I wouldn't, rec- I
1: don't know anybody who uses motivational videos and is successful, honestly. I don't know a single person. What I do know are people who have gone through Tony Robbins, and they've done the exercise of what do I want, and then they get very clear on why do I want it, and what will happen if I don't do it. Just to be clear- are you talking about the Dickens exercise or personal power? But they're the same thing, kind okay. of. But well, very, just if you look up Tony Robbins, you're going to get yeah. a thousand. Personal days. power too. Amazing program uh, by Tony Robbins. Day two, I like know the days. It's like day two and day six. Real brief. Uh, if you sit down and you list out, let's say, I want to work on my charisma. Why? And then you clearly write out the world, you know, because there's this particular person and I want them to like me and I can see myself getting this job and my group of friends isn't inspiring. I could hang out with that group of friends. You make that clear. And then you also make clear, well, what will happen if I don't do it? I'll stagnate. I'll stay in this group. They'll drag me down. I'll probably, you know, not get to date this person I like. I'll have to settle for a job I don't want. When you get clear on the why, mm-hmm. that motivation becomes intrinsic. Uh, so check out Personal Power. It is, it's to call it motivation is such an understatement because it's lasting versus these motivational videos which are like change your state, feel good. Yeah. Uh, so check out check that course out.
2: Yeah. Personally, all the biggest motivation that stuck was from a strong north star mm-hmm. it was from reading a book about charisma and going oh my god wait what i can do this and yeah. it, it just gave me a goal of what my life would be like i read the four-hour work and it was waking up on the beach in brazil you know drinking a coconut and that that image stuck with me and i could work towards it mm-hmm. but it was never a video of somebody screaming at me or saying something uh, profound about how motivation works it yeah. was it, i needed a dream to chase a strong why makes sense how much time
3: uh we have time for like one more cool um so the last one you have touched on your trouble finding connection and points in your life where you go on date after date and the women you meet are perfectly great women but you don't feel like you can really connect with them i've been struggling with this for years rarely feeling any sort of connection or chemistry with the people i meet through online dating i believe you eventually concluded this was due to a mental block you had within yourself my question is whether you have been able to resolve this at all and if you have any advice for someone working through something similar
2: uh so i don't know uh, to exactly is this to me i imagine that is not my problem i connect <laughs> strongly on the first date, and then the problem is quickly i realized the connection was more about excitement then well, that's i think that's that's a different version of this problem sure but it ends on like the third date, and it's rare to have a fifth date but got it no I, I don't
1: i don't have a particular conclusion uh in mind what i will say is that if you're finding that you're not and i in myself you're finding that you're not connecting it's because there's a part of your filter that isn't geared towards actually connecting, meaning you're on this dating app and you're swiping right for the people you find most physically attractive who have X physical feature and skipping pretty quickly over the bio. Like weirdly enough, the, uh, th- those few sentences tell you a lot about someone. You can yeah. find out if they choose to be funny, if they choose to, if they say swipe left if, you're like, okay, here's a person who. Finds critical, things they yeah. don't like and is critical. Like if you, you can't you, handle me at my worst. Yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. Have me at like my best. people and and also Run what's away. going on? Uh, is this person out hiking or are they out at the club or are they all selfies from this angle? I mean, you can. That's a great point, actually. If you're looking not at the shape of the person, but what they're yeah. doing, it's, it's very. It's just what is this person broadcasting? Yeah. I mean, you can actually determine and filter uh, for things that might be a better fit. So ask yourself, what have I filtered for in the past? Chances are it's physical attraction, and what would actually make me happy? You know, is an outdoor yoga loving, whatever, um, you know, into this kind of music, there's, there's, you know, likes to play video games, whatever. Uh,
2: it's that your filters are off. It's mm-hmm. that your filter to get the person out is one thing. So now you're sitting down with someone that hasn't been vetted for yes. There's no reason for you to like, and you quite they weren't for, vetted for that. Yes. And That's so you, you might want to try
1: uh, filtering and, and this might mean to swipe right on somebody that you might not initially consider very attractive just to go in the direction of like, okay, this person has the personality demographic that I think I would really like. Oh. Uh, and you might surprise yourself. Uh, now, I'm not saying pick someone that you think under no circumstances could I feel attraction to them, but you might be surprised when you get in person. We've talked about this is that on dating apps, people are so much more critical because it's so easy. Oh,
2: I used to talk about my friends uh, in bars because uh, yeah. this, this, where there'd be a girl over there and they'd be like looking in that direction. So not it's like, pretty hey, enough. why don't yeah. you go talk to her? Oh, she's not pretty enough. And I said, imagine that she's laughing at a joke you said with her hand on your chest. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, she's <laughs> way beyond yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. enough. Like yeah. that would be so exhilarating yeah but in order to protect themselves they just have an incredibly high standard yeah which is not really their standard at all so i
1: think that's that wind it down cool thank right. you everybody to our patrons you guys rock i'm started or tried to start a book club i'm horrible at staying in line with books so i'm figuring it out but i am kind of doing updates on the books that i'm reading in the patreon oh nice if we can make a book club lurk i don't want to promise it it'll be available to all patrons um but you guys rock also, by the way, as we hop into this interview, unfortunately, there were some technical difficulties on Chris's side, this carbon monoxide thing. We don't really know. Something was beeping when he was speaking. We apologize in advance of that. We've tried to remove it as much as we can, but it is a very interesting conversation, so hopefully
2: you can get through that because we have a lot of fun stuff to say. Yeah. So here's that. And he did very well considering <laughs> that he is losing oxygen to the brain at a rapid rate, <laughs> so very good for him. So here we are. We got Chris Johnson fan of Chris on Command, fan of the podcast, wrote in and mentioned that you are a journalist working in Washington, D.C. You've done White House correspondence, talked to President Obama, talked to President Trump, and uh, were kind enough to come on so that we could talk about media, because this is an area that Charlie and I have a lot of questions around, the objectivity of media, especially since it seems to have such a big influence on how people perceive the truth and reality these days, depending on what news they consume. So thanks for coming on.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, I've been following Charisma on Command for a long time. You guys have been very helpful for me and uh, just developing some of my communication skills as a journalist here in Washington, D.C. So uh, I'm so I'm so stoked that you guys are having me on your podcast. It's awesome. That's great. Awesome. So you want to hop in with the
2: questions? Yeah, sure. So I think the first, the first thing that I'm always curious of with media is <sighs> every time that you see an article, you can kind of guess where it's from, right? If I showed you a bunch of articles and I said some of these are from CNN, some are from Fox News, all I'm going to give you is the headline, you'd have like a 90% accuracy in terms of predicting who was covering that news. And so my question is, what happens if you or someone in your organization wants to write a story that goes against majority opinion? Within the organization. A a a la someone at Fox News wants to write a pro-Biden piece.
4: Right, and... Uh, just to start off with, I'm all right for the Washington blade. We're a small alternative LGBTQ newspaper here in Washington, DC. So I'm going to be bringing, I'm answering this question uh, from that perspective. Just sure. to preface what I'm going to say here. Sure. And I think that the issue in my experience, like from every employer that I've worked for, the issue hasn't been so much the, you know, opinion of the the company or the, your bosses who generally understand you're, you're there to do a, a news, you know, report the news as it is. The issue is more of the audience. Hmm. Uh, if the these like Fox News, MSNBC, they have built up audiences for people who want to hear certain news. Rachel Maddow's show is always going to be something about how Trump screwed something up, um, and then OAN and uh, OANN, Trump's favorite News Network is always going to be how it's going to be very sycophantic and very flattering. So. Everyone who's reading this is expecting to get that kind of information from those from those news outlets. So you say you're running for one of those outlets, and you, like Rachel Maddow, want to say, well, Trump didn't do that bad on this, or, oh, yeah, I want to be somehow, Trump screwed that up. Well, then, people who are, like, following those news outlets, if they read that, they're going to get mad. And they will, be, they will make their views known, um, you know, they might potentially... <laughs> like a, a call for people to stop, you know, following you. This happened quite a bit, I think, in the New York Times, I think. Is a, I think it's going through kind of a transition uh, as a lot of uh, more uh, progressive voices um, are, are coming forward and they're kind of calling for changes in the New York Times and how there's always a complaint. Well, I'm canceling my subscription because of this this op-ed or this, this news story, that kind of thing. So, um, and then that really registers, though, with the company. I mean, they need to have a sustainable audience in order to keep going. So if you have, your audience is, gonna, is not following you, then... Uh, that's going to be a problem. So you have to really take that into consideration as you're writing stuff. I mean, I've had I, my uh, audience is generally speaking very progressive, very uh, in, at least interested in what's going on with the LGBTQ community. So um, I have to kind of take that into consideration when I'm presenting my news. Just so it's, And it's not like, I'm, like I have to obscure anything, at least in my opinion. I, I, it's just the presentation of it, making like if I have to give a piece of information to an audience that might not want to hear this information, thinking about how what's the best way to position this and why I think that this, this uh, information is going to be relevant to that readership? Mm-hmm. So, so to answer your question, it's not so much the editorial, uh, you know, the, the management side of it, it's just the audience side. So do you
2: feel like your obligation is to, I mean, there's no such thing as like the truth, but to trying to report as honestly as possible, do you feel like your obligation is to try to provide the best stuff for your audience and best means things they'll like the most and share the most. How do you, what's your first God, I guess that you worship when (laughs) it comes to writing your stories? uh,
4: Those things are two different goals. I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, the truth, if it's something is truthful, uh, is the truth, something is an important news story, then your readers are going to share it. They're going to have a lot of clicks. It's going to get a lot of attention despite the very nature of the fact that it's an important news story that, Mm -hmm. and uh, well, is that sorry? I don't mean to interrupt,
2: but is that true? Because I thought you just said basically, if you wrote something that was true, but was something your audience doesn't like, that they're not going to share it. They're going to try to cancel you.
4: Exactly. Well, that's what, that's what I was going to move on to. There is kind of a corollary right to that, and it's kind of a concession, and that you have to kind of, uh, you know, you have to take that into consideration. You, you have to take that into consideration as you present the news. I mean, and those are like. And, and, you know, one, one new story you, you might think, okay, this is going to be give me a lot of clicks. This is going to fulfill that goal of getting a lot of shares, getting a lot of clicks, getting a lot of web traffic, uh, you know, uh, getting a lot of attention. And the other goal, other new story, maybe it doesn't have the kind of uh, same, uh, you know, uh, same goal as getting so much attention, but you think it's going to be important for other reasons. Um, uh, it might be speaking to like more of, more of a limited audience within your audience. Um, for example, I wrote a piece a while back uh, on how there were, within the Biden campaign, there were people, uh, there's a piece of legislation called the Equality Act, which is an important piece of LGBTQ rights legislation. And there are people who, who I was speaking to in a circles who are concerned that he doesn't have the staff set up right now in order to, uh, uh, you know, to make this legislation become law if and when it becomes president next year. And so uh, it was critical of the Biden campaign and, and its staff. And I mean that didn't get hardly any shares at all because I think a lot of people didn't want to be complicit in that. The this, this criticism of Biden from the LGBT side, but it was an important story to do nonetheless because this issue is a, um, you know this issue is LGBT rights is something that our audience is really concerned about. And um, and even though it didn't get a lot of shares, I still think it got a lot of web traffic. It got a decent amount of web traffic. and a different amount of views because people are interested in this topic. So I guess then that'd be one instance when shares and web traffic. Are not, not necessarily
1: the same thing. As as you we were talking, I I thought a lot about our, our business, because it's the same thing. And and what you, you said something that made me realize, which I think is true, that uh, the we have a democratic society in the sense that the power actually is in the audience. It's we've talked about this a little bit earlier today. The tastemakers try as they might have a difficult time dictating what the masses ought to think and feel. And so, like you're kind of describing, they're responding to what the masses want. So, you know, your readership wants one particular view. Our charisma viewers want one particular character. They want us to, you know, if I were to go on there and talk about, this isn't something that I think, how Robert Downey Jr. isn't charismatic, actually, People would riot. No. <laughs> you know, right? Like, <laughs> or how Evan Turner is incredibly charismatic. Or, or that Indiana Mark. That no yeah. Mark Zuckerberg of. is really, you know, he's the guy who has it completely under control. Like if I don't I don't think that. And weirdly enough, I don't know if you're familiar, but Noam Chomsky has this idea of manufactured consent, which is to say that it doesn't require me to censor myself to create content that the audience wants, because by the very virtue of the fact that I that I created a four million subscriber YouTube channel, the the filter was already on my beliefs as I rose through the ranks such that anyone in your organization doesn't need to be told, you know, hey, you know, I, I would prefer if you had this view of Donald Trump and this view of Joe Biden, I would prefer that you supported him. It's just if you're going to work at this newspaper and you're going to apply, rise up, do well, get along with your colleagues, that is a kind of a baked in thing that occurs not just with you, but it occurs in our organization, it occurs at Fox News and CNN, etc. Um, so it's just interesting. I don't even know that I have anything other than a question as I'm sort of reflecting on this, that really it's the tribalism of the audience that is what creates s- such difficulty. And I have the same Split as you do, where I go. Okay, one for me, one for them. I'm gonna do a Don Draper video, and then I'm gonna do Sad Guru, and nobody's gonna watch Sad Guru. Uh, and that's why the podcast exists because it's it's an outlet for me to talk about some of the things that are less popular but more near and dear to my heart. So I mean, no question. I'm just it's it's an interesting insight that that really it seems to be the audience that wants their side protected and the other side attacked that creates that polarization and not necessarily some grand scheme coming down from on high.
4: Right. But I don't want to limit too much the kind of the autonomy of the the creator of content Mm -hmm. uh, in this process. I mean, the audience is, you know, uh, an essential part. Otherwise, you're just talking to yourself. Yeah. But I mean, as a creator, you have ways to uh, approach, you know, your your, uh, the content you're creating. So that's more uh, more palatable to the audience and they would want to consume it more readily. Mm -hmm. I I saw a really interesting, um, video by the, uh, the pointer Institute, which is a nonprofit for journalists. And, uh, they made some recommendations on headlines. And one thing that was really interesting is just by some simple changes, you can get a lot more, you know, a lot more interest, a lot more clicks. Like, uh, if you have a story about like a business story and the headline includes revenue, Mm-hmm. not a lot of people are going to be clicking on that however you put in the headline instead of revenue makes money you're going to get a lot of clicks on that so I mean I think it's really impo- I mean there, there's a lot of different factors going into this relationship between the uh person creating media and the consumer of the media mm-hmm. and I you know I, I don't want to like and some of that is audience and some of it is the creator but it's, it's you know it's a lot it's, it's a it's a give and take it's it's, it's 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 a uh, it's, in, in, in a way, it's kind of a collaborative process. Even as a, if a creator, you're not very, you're not, uh, very aware of that because when you create the stuff, you put it online, and you're not very conscious of the audience. But mm-hmm. um, that's there. Got it. Do you want to do go
2: down yeah, the yeah. list? No, no. Well, I have, a, I have a question. It's completely unrelated, though. So as someone who's in news media, do you have a critique for the big news organizations like Fox or CNN? Or do you think that they largely carry themselves well?
4: I am reluctant to criticize any particular news outlet um, just because I just don't really feel as a general matter that uh, that is a good, like there's one outlet that I'm going to say is not doing what they're supposed to, mostly because it's just my general belief that if you have a platform, you should be able to say basically whatever you want in this country. Mm -hmm. And then if you have an audience that responds to that, uh, then more power to you, obviously you're, you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is just, uh, some people might object to that. There's, people might say that there's certain outlets are promulgating messages that, um, shouldn't be heard and, or should be silenced. And, uh, and, uh, and that's kind of a rising trend, I think in the okay. United States, but it's not something that I subscribe to. Got
2: it. So your, your belief is basically that they have the right to write whatever they want. Not so much. There's no such thing as like a dangerous truth. And that as long as their audience responds to it, that that's their right to write about it. Is that fair?
4: I would say that. And if there is a dangerous truth, then the, you know, the, the, what's the opposite of dangerous truth, the safe truth. We we can use that to uh, counteract the the dangerous truth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and because you have to, uh, which is the dangerous truth and which is the not dangerous truth. It's, it's very, it's, it's very subjective. And so the, um, but if, if something is very dangerous it should be made evident as to why that's dangerous and the regular truth as it were would be able to uh, address that
2: got it got it yeah that's cool as someone who works at a progressive uh outlet I thought perhaps you'd have a different view but I largely I agree with you
4: mm-hmm. cool yeah so do right. you- and 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 I have to say like I'm just very like I'm in a progressive outlet I'm personally I'm not aligned with anything and I just kind of a um, and that's just the approach I take with my journalism. I don't. I, I definitely want to try to incorporate all sides, even though i progressive outlet. Uh, you know, I, try, I, I definitely try to get a, like a, maybe a one conservative viewpoint into a larger piece that I'm working on, just so I can get uh, my uh, audience the uh, balanced take. Now, I just went through a thing about how the audience is not going to probably like the conservative <laughs> take, but I just make sure that it's presented in a way that uh, is something that be. Uh, more accepted them, but th- th- so that they're also aware of what the other side is thinking.
1: I have a, I have a question. So, have how long have you been in journalism?
4: Uh, I've been in journalism for a long time, um, and was going to kind of you know embarrassingly uh, reflect my age here. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was right after the September 11th attacks
1: that okay. I got involved in journalism. Okay, so you've been there for a long time. Congratulations on your your skincare routine. You're killing it. <laughs> 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 but so. Donald Trump famously popularized the idea of fake news just a few years ago. Do you think, and, and now even beyond Donald Trump, I think uh, both sides of the aisle definitely have their eye on this idea of fake news, which is often spread via social media. Has Do you think that Donald Trump called something as it was arising, or has it been around since 2001 in a way that people weren't aware? Have the tech
4: giants- It's been around since people have been able to talk. Okay. <laughs> I mean, people have always been able to gossip, yeah, and people have always been able to- spread um you know what any kind of information they go want to we didn't need to have the internet has definitely made communication a lot easier i mean uh and, and it's the world is a very tiny place now but i mean <laughs> um first of all i just want to, definitely want to challenge the idea of what exactly is misinformation is also can be very subjective yeah let's certain, talk about that I mean, obviously there are certain things that are just right or wrong but then when we get into especially when they get the political sphere I think a lot of these, um, uh, a lot of things that are decried as misinformation are actually uh, opinions that people disagree with. Mm-hmm. But to a larger point of like how long this has been going on, I mean, you can just kind of go back to, uh, I mean, I, I, an example I'm thinking about is um, the uh, election of, uh, I think it was 1960, when uh, John Kennedy was running against Hubert Humphrey. And what happened was there was in Wisconsin, there was this, I guess there was like a campaign saying that no one's going to vote for John Kennedy because he's Catholic or something like that. Or Mm -hmm. you don't vote for Kennedy because he's Catholic. And then that means that the Pope is actually going to run the United States or something like (laughs) that. And that, as it turns out, uh, uh, was actually put together by a Kennedy supporter out there to actually have the opposite effect, to get more sympathy for Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So people would come to the polls uh, to vote for him. Interesting. So, I mean, this idea of fake news, this idea of misinformation, this has been around for quite a while. Al Gore never said I in the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not no. Got it. And, the, yeah, I remember the swift boat
1: attacks and all of these other things. I mean, I could just as i going back through it. So, given – do you think that if the quality of the problem hasn't changed, you know, this has existed, has the quantity changed in a meaningful enough way that it's a serious problem or – or is it really just, no, this is what happens in the world is that lies sometimes spread faster than the truth. And, and that's always been something that we've dealt with and doesn't need a special reaction today.
4: I think that's really difficult to quantify to some extent, especially because I just kind of said that, you know, since people have been able to talk, they've been able to spread misinformation. So it's just mm-hmm. kind of hard for me to like say, well, because now they have computers and they can just kind of go online and access the entire world anytime they want to. Uh, that's it's more and and I guess under that logic now that I'm thinking about it, that might lend the fact that if something is incorrect that they want it spread around, that might make things a little bit easier. But I mean word of mouth gets around around pretty quickly. So you would it sounds
1: like you would be against the idea of some of these tech platforms instituting greater procedures to remove, you know, even identified potential Russian bots or uh, or alleged Russian bots or fake news about coronavirus statistics that you would say this has been around and correct me if I'm wrong, this has been around forever and we've always trusted the audience to have to sort through it. And we can't have, you know, some benevolent <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg deciding what is real and what is fake.
4: Exactly. I mean, I think just feel like I said that the audience has a really big role in um, how an outlet reports its news. I think the audience also has for that by, by virtue of that, then they have a really strong responsibility at mm-hmm. the same time in order to uh, manage their news intake and, and what they're, and what they're taking. So mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, I think, is the first barrier for, you know, setting what is misinformation, what is misinformation online. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, when you give those keys to, like, Mark Zuckerberg or some third party, uh, that, to, you know, uh, limits, uh, you know, what is what is correct, what is not correct, especially when so many of these things as I said before are not necessarily correct or not correct, just kind of disagreements in a subjective sense. Uh, I think... Think that is dangerous because uh, it, it might be the just a truth that people don't want to see hmm. is uh not get, is not getting expressed. Got it. It's interesting because because what I'm
1: sort of hearing from you is is a view of uh, almost metaphysics, which is to say that. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm I'm trying to understand your underlying philosophy, which is that. Nobody has exclusive access to reality, except perhaps in very rare cases where we're talking uh, numbers. But even then, you sound iffy on that, which, which is reflective of how I feel. And given that nobody can, there is no one perfect view of reality, we just have to open this door for like several different views, some of which might be crazy, and then allow for discussion amongst all of us participants in that reality to be like, what do we do with this, this information? Is that accurate? to what you think i would say that's a good view of my
4: my approach to how media should be run and how uh you know that i think the policing of an individual and an audience's policing of information is how a free society should operate by i mean by very nature you're not free if you're having uh you know facebook Mm -hmm. or twitter or these other organizations control what content you can see or what's what's fake what's true and what's not true got so uh yeah, I'm a really big proponent of the fact of audience being the uh, first and final arbiter on what kind of what is correct and what. Okay, so and
1: so we talked about the gay side, and you, you I guess have implied that the you know the LGBTQIA plus all are at different stages of uh, acceptance, and so even beyond that, I think I I am assuming that you're implying that, that trans people are behi- lagging behind gay people in acceptance. Is that accurate?
4: I would definitely agree with that Mm -hmm. because you just have to look uh, at the, uh, you know, our current electoral politics. Trans people are still, there's still a degree of fear about them. Um, If you saw the news just this week, there are these ads that this group, the American Principles Project ran, uh, raising concerns about the the Equality Act, the LGBT non-discrimination measure I mentioned way back at the start of the podcast saying that it would enable boys to compete in girls' sports mm-hmm. because the law would ban transgender discrimination. So a transgender girl could compete in the same team as a uh, non-transgender girl. Mm-hmm. And so so unlike, we're not really seeing that any, anymore, I don't think with gay people. We might have seen that like in the 90s even with uh, uh, George W. Bush campaigning on the federal marriage amendment, he wanted to make a ban on same-sex marriage part of the constitution. Uh, that was in the '80s, but you know, it, and then in the '90s, you know, we did have uh, uh, "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," and uh, so, so just to clarify, though,
1: I, I think I am seeing stories, and I don't know the veracity of these stories, where there are transgender uh, boys to girls competing in high school track or in MMA. What's her name, Fallon? Fall something. Balls. other. there? Uh, are those? Are you telling me that those aren't real, or that that's not a real concern? Or
4: I'm not saying they're not real, and that's not a real concern. I think that this is actually something that is being talked about right now mm-hmm. um, with as this issue of trans rights, is something that needs to be thought about. I mean, in a sense, like these broad measures are meant to protect transgender people in employment and in housing, you know, these basic things, basic areas of life that everyone needs and making sure that uh, everyone has them. But then these like thorny little issues come up like transgender participation in sports. And I mean, a lot of different organizations have dealt with this in different ways. Um, I know that some organizations say that you have to have a certain amount of, uh, you know, your testosterone can't be so high, and if you want to compete in a women's sport. However, then this raises the problem that there are women out there yeah, who are yeah. not transgender who just naturally have high testosterone. Why do I so have now to compete? A that they're, 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 being, uh, they're, uh, they're having uh, totally. issues. Well, and, uh, I at one and, point. Uh, and in, competing with the, with the gender they want to, uh, that they want to compete as. Yeah. I was, six, so, I was 16 to an and is I had similar had discussions discussion because obviously people like people want to be fair, but they also don't want to be exclusionary. Yeah. So I think this is going to be something that's going to be talked about quite a while and it'll, it will come to resolution. But at the same time, I think people are like stoking fears about this boys and girls sports kind of irrationally in order to inflame, uh, inflame, and and flame fears,
3: uh, for political purposes.
1: Yeah. So I have a lot of trans questions. It's not a topic that I'm versed in, but I do see on both sides, um, philosophical issues in, in, in continuity of the idea. So the one idea being, okay, let's measure testosterone. As you said, like there's going to be people like me <laughs> that are like probably on the lower side of testosterone it's like well wait a second if I scrape in do I get to compete all of a
2: sudden in the WNBA well you can also like, manipulate it if you just fast or yeah do if thing, I fast or if I do, it's it for it's, two weeks you can tank your testosterone take the test and then be like all right cool I'm and it. well the other
1: weird thing is that sports like the fact that we have gendered sports is a little bit strange when you consider that what separates me and LeBron James in large portion is the testosterone that we received in our adolescent years. just like what separates my sister and I is the testosterone that we received in our adolescent years. Now there's a ton of other things that go into it, but if you're saying that you know I can't compete in the same uh, the same field as my sister because she's at a physical disadvantage, well why would I have to compete against LeBron James? because we're clearly not the same kind of human being. Uh, and so I I don't see, a ton of consistency there. It's like if gender is, in fact, uh, a spectrum, then you're going to see not just trans, but you're going to see all different kinds of people lining up in all different kinds of places and a bifurcation that goes, well, one group over here, one group over here no longer is tenable. Uh, So I think that I think that it raises a lot of philosophical issues that I haven't been totally worked through. You know,
4: do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do understand what you're saying, and I think that having to be – these issues that haven't been worked through, I think, is kind of where it is right now because Mm -hmm. there definitely needs to be a discussion on this. I remember, like, I was attending a congressional hearing, I think it was last year, in which uh, someone who was a proponent of Title IX, which is a 1972 law that Mm -hmm. made uh, equal access for boys and girls Mm -hmm. uh, in school, including in school sports, saying that – I mean, we should have – like, she believes in equality. She doesn't – she thinks transgender people should be able to participate in sports – but there should be some some kind of gender based uh, some kind of gender based attributes by which we can say okay uh, this is somebody we, we, that we can uh, uh, allow them to just play consistent with their gender identity or, or or not and if the person doesn't meet those standards then we can say I'm sorry you're not eligible um, much like we have rules for for uh, for doping and for other you know other 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 things. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, I think that this is just an issue that needs to be examined, and I don't really have like. First of all, I'm not, I'm not a person who is as a journal, as a reporter, as a observer, I don't really have like. A, I'm not supposed to give you my opinion anyway. <laughs> well, I, you're not a journalist right now. You can to, have an opinion. <laughs> to, to give you, uh, to give you. So I mean, because there's a lot of thorny issues here. I think there is a, a way to approach this where um, it's going to be reasonably fair for everyone. Because of course that this issue, I don't think is is. It's coming up a lot in different uh, in different contexts. Or at least it seems. But I think it's. Probably more, but these, just because the issue is just so new and it's kind of hard for us to wrap our head around, I think it's more prominent than it actually is. I think it's actually a very rare situation in which this emerges. Yeah, so I,
1: I'll just put the call-outs because I, I, we've, we've talked for a minute here and even it can be you, but if there is anyone out there, trans or otherwise, that feels like they have a lot of understanding of the uh, trans issues and, and the things that are coming up, I have a ton of questions because not even from the political side, I'm interested in the philosophy of it because one of the core tenets is that uh, that gender identity is, I believe to a degree fluid, which is not held by all trans people, but there's a fact that it, that it can, uh, it's not binary and it's not locked in are basically huge parts of it. And it's not necessarily determined by the genitals that you have at birth. So if that is the case, there's a lot of, which I'm open to, there's a lot of implications that that has for, uh, for instance, there was a guy in my high school that was five foot two that was, if you were to, I guess, chart him, yes, he had male genitals, but probably had very low testosterone, had, you know, never grew after a certain thing, weighed 100 pounds. Like, where does he fall? Who does he compete with in these types of sporting events? Uh, when we're trying to get diversity in the workplace, is it diversity by genitalia, in which case he has a penis in his male genitalia, or is it diversity by testosterone, in which case he might qualify as this, quote, unquote, and I'm not trying to be mean to him at all, this female group, like all, if, If it is the case that it is not so obvious and easy to separate people, what does that then mean for diversity? Uh, At least according to gender, which seems to be obvious at first blush, but may in fact not be. So, well, there's
4: one other element I think you didn't mention there that is gender identity. Like, Mm -hmm. what is the gender to which this person subscribes to? Mm -hmm. And as a person who's a free thinking person who's able to evaluate their own gender, uh, you know, like, I I think that. That is an important factor for consideration, too. And and, and I think that it may even be the ultimate factor in just about every case. Might be some uh, situations where that isn't off the top of my head, like sports might be one issue. But if a person is going to say, okay, this is my gender, male, this is my gender, female, uh, then uh, I mean, that is probably going to be a key determinant as to which, you know facilities, which, which activities they're sure. going to be. Uh, I think, I think a difficult
1: thing of. with that is a uh, bad actor. So, yeah. I mean, you had the guy Zuby who did uh, set the women's deadlift, deadlift record, right? He walked in said, I I'm a female right now. And then set uh, the deadlift record for women. And so who determines bad actors? And I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about, well, you know, are you, there's definitely going to be someone who says, look, you're just acting up to get attention from your parents. You know, you're not you're not actually trans. And so if if you can't take someone, if you can't take one person at their word, you can't take anybody at their word. And so who now is determining people who are authentically feeling this if it's not the individual themselves? And I think that all of these become very, very sticky issues because if, if it suits someone's career purposes to identify as a woman so as to get a promotion... I, there is someone in America, more than one person, that would do that in order to uh, – without actually feeling what – those subjective internal feelings of feeling like a woman because they knew that it would advance their career. And so uh, we, I think these are very I- important issues. If, if what you are is determined by how you feel and what you say – how do we sort through a world where we're, st- we're categorizing people, you know, okay, this is going to, you can have this job or not have this job or participate in this sport or not participate in this sport. So if anyone is out there that is thinking, oh, I have the answers to this, or I can add some nuance, let us know, because this is a conversation that I think has uh, not been had, because it really, if, if, if it, there's a whole opening of fascinating philosophical fallout that I think is, is a fun conversation.
4: Right, and I think that for the instance of fraud, a bad actor saying that they're transgender when in fact they're not, just because, for example, the example that you gave, uh, a man participating in a women's great weightlifting competition, I mean, there are ex- ways to prove fraud. If something is challenged, like, okay, I'm transgender, therefore I get to participate in a sport, well, I can say, well, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. And there are ways to, uh, uh, you know, if it's the case of a sport, for example, that might be one instance when a, a person would have to be required to show, like, uh, like a doctor's diagnosis of being transgender. What about, um, what about a job? Or and having gone through treatment, that kind of thing. Well,
2: let's say I'm applying to a, a high six figure engineering job. Historically, more male applicants than female applicants. They need, let's need say, it, the very, let's say there's yeah. a quota that says, well, women are 50% of the population. You need to be at least 35% female, but the applicant pool is 90% men, 10% women. There's an incentive there as well to identify as whichever gender. Let's say it's 90% women, now there's an advantage to identify as male. And so do you take someone at their word? Do you require a doctor's note? If so, you're going to be requiring it of people who are genuinely, they feel like they're trans. But if you don't, you will get people who are going, well, I'll be in the ten percent applicant pool that's going to get thirty five percent of the job. And to be clear, doctors have been—you know—this people have had what do they call cataracts for about
1: thirty years to get weed. You know what I mean? There's going to be yeah, doctors yeah. out there. <laughs> There's going to be doctors that of anxiety are signing prescriptions
2: out. Prescriptions skyrocketed. So now, yeah. In any event, I don't
1: I don't know the answers to any of these questions. But the really fascinating philosophical thing is, where does the truth of certain characteristics about me lie? Is it in my subjective experience of myself is it a, is it a conversation that i have to have with you you know where where is the truth of who i am and so is and is gender different than other things about me like my race you know what i mean like if i like what determines my race if i go to my ancestry.com and it turns out me looking the way i do am say 15% african origin but i identify and feel strongly tied to that community What, who negotiates that? Who feels that? And I think it really, transgender is is the issue that's sort of deeper at its core is where does the truth of who you are lie? Is it a negotiation that we have together? Do you tell me or do I tell you? And how
2: does that all work? Which I think is... And especially how does it play in a world that moves more towards uh, legislated affirmative action, let's say. Where Where there is now incentive. there's There's no quotas and there's no sports, let's say. Whatever. Identify as whatever gender and whatever Mm -hmm. races you want, because we're gonna we're gonna look at your resume, we're gonna block your name, we're just gonna Mm -hmm. look at where you went to school and your job experience. But if the world is moving more towards something where it says we're looking for equity, not equality of opportunity, but equal outcomes, then how you allow people to identify suddenly plays a major role. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so and so what gender are you, what race are you, how do you identify? Mm-hmm. now it's now it has real world consequences as in an attempt to be progressive quotas come out mm-hmm. so I, I don't think it's something that's uh unimportant just because today mm-hmm. it's not necessarily important how what race or gender you identify it's also just, for careers
1: it's just fascinating where is reality is reality inside of me is it is it in between you and i or is it is it in the collective no you are x they yeah, tell me a, is it a doctor because they have a degree i don't know yeah it's fascinating
2: do you have any thoughts on any of that in terms of like- uh, No pressure, by the way. No, no, it's absolutely not what you came on to talk about. And I would like to have somebody who is trans or deep in the community come on as well.
4: Right. I mean, there's a lot going on there. And I do think that somebody who, is, who actually is trans and has that experience would be yeah. able to uh, probably definitely address that uh, more than I can. I, I just think that for some of these other categories, for example, you talked about, well, if I can be transgender, why can't I be transracial?
2: Mm-hmm.
4: If, for example, I just decided, you know what? I'm no longer- I mean, I'm obviously a white guy. So, you know what? I'm actually going to be Latino. I'm actually going to be Asian. I mean, there are some cultural sensitivity issues, I think, to that. Like, for example, you're just going to sort of like take on this group that has experienced as a uh, hardship. And, you know, I, I still have like a real connection with the black community. Hold on. We, lo- we
1: lost audio for a second. So, I, I heard we have a I have a real connection with the black community. Go ahead.
4: Like so I I'm say, I'm a member of the black community. And so, because I, I really identify with that. So... Um, you know, so I'm black now. And I think that by doing that, that puts yourself, you're taking on a certain, almost like a, you're getting into a community that has uh, been uh, collectively uh, been suffering and collectively been uh, enduring and, and protecting itself in a way that I don't think gender is quite so much. I mean, there obviously has been Uh, I know, long history of uh, misogyny in the, uh, you know, worldwide. But I just think that uh, when you start saying, uh, you know, like the concept of being transracial compared to being transgender, I think that that really has a lot of implications about going into a group that um, you're you're taking on certain attributes that, uh, that you're taking on a group that has um, uh, histories of, of oppression that, and, People in that group might be offended by the fact that you're trying to sure. claim that identity. Well, would, well, so what if imagine. a black person
1: feels white, though? Can it go that way?
4: And what if well, it's to that, their advantage? that's a different question.
1: Like a trans... Um, uh, I mean... So here's the thing. Uh, I, I think <laughs> we're, we're it's missing... a hypothetical situation... <laughs> it will um, happen. It will happen. Because here's what I'm saying is that there's... What is the limiting principle? If... Uh, where, where does how I define myself, where is the boundary of that? Where does it bump up against something? And, and I don't know what the limiting principle is. I'm not saying that transgender shouldn't exist or shouldn't be accepted because of it. But I do think that philosophically, what we have to go is, where does my description of myself stop and bump into your experience of me and everyone else's experience of me? And it's, and it's I don't know that there's a clear answer, but it needs an answer.
2: <laughs> Especially because I think there are women that would disagree with you and would say that females historic, and I'm not saying I believe this, but you would get someone who would say females historically very oppressed, have been the victims of patriarchy in such a way that when you are a white man who identifies as a woman, you are coming into my house at whatever age. Let's say I do it at 33. Well, you didn't have to deal with all of the sexism, the catcalling, the oppression. It's
1: the J.K. Rowling issue, is that being told I
2: wasn't good at math in high school. You now you're 33 and you just wanna come into my thing. I'm not saying that's a good argument or bad argument, but I do think it's unfair to say that it doesn't parallel the African American experience. I, Mm -hmm. I think there are women who would say it's Quite similar. Um, Certainly, I think the women who run BLM would say that there's Mm -hmm. oppression for being black and there's oppression for being women and there's oppression for being queer. Mm -hmm. That's at least my understanding from reading their statements. So Mm -hmm. I think that uh, to allow people to identify whatever their gender is, I do think that the next domino may be race. And I think saying that it's not is kind of like saying that it's 1980 and obviously your genitals determine your Mm -hmm. gender. Mm-hmm.
1: you know what i mean i'm just interested in the philosophy of it quite frankly i i want to understand because here's the truth i'm interested in like what am i am I, I i don't know am i am i what other people tell me am am i what i think i am am i a negotiation between you and i yeah i'd love to have
2: someone on who th- who has a hard belief about this mm-hmm. who's like no i figured out where i think we all should draw the line yeah and then we can explore whether that's philosophically sound or not sure and is there any any
4: Thoughts on yeah, that? I mean, you guys kept saying why drawing the line There needs to be an answer to this. And I, I honestly, I don't really see why we need to have an answer to it. I just don't, I, we're progressing as a society, uh, adjusting to these new concepts of, uh, of identity, including being transgender. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we are making accommodations as we see fit as a society for these people. I don't see why we do have to have a definitive answer. I just don't, I, I it's not really, that's not really third to me. I mean, there, these are things for us to think about and talk about on podcasts, you know, yeah, where yeah, we draw yeah. the line, why are we doing it this way, why are we doing it that way? But I just don't really see really the need to have something very so defined as to like what, what is the rule for this. I think that is any situation is going to be, uh, is going to be different. There are some things that are going to be subjective, there are where there's only really no right or wrong answer. So, I sure. why it needs to be very detailed is not sure, defined isn't very clear. Sure, I, and, I have an answer. Do you
1: want to go, yeah, yeah. And I'm not a politician, so and I do think that society progresses in, um. Bits. You know what I mean? It doesn't, they don't, there's like society doesn't introduce a principle and then live it out for 100 years. What we do is we take these steps and then kind of find our footing as we go. So for those people creating policy, I, I totally understand. But I do think that there are, pre- when, when things change, there are predictable outcomes. So, you know, if, if gay men advocate for the ability to marry one another, it's predictable that gay women will advocate, you know, that that, that is, stands to reason. So if we go to war, which we have in the past, and the selective service is only for men, and men in the past have, tied to, have tried to dodge the draft by being exempt for all sorts of reasons, and we're at war with China, I think you're going to see a lot of transgender men to women. And and I think that being able to define yourself out of a group that you don't want to be in and into a group that you do want to be in is going to become far more commonplace than you would... And And I think it will have... Uh, things that I can't even anticipate today. But when you incentivize people with, the, you can claim something about yourself as you can essentially, and I'm not saying this is what trans people are doing, but you, person, can tell a lie in order to enter into a uh, a group that you find better. Yeah, escape the draft. To escape the draft or to get the job or to uh, whatever. You're going to see that happen now. Granted, maybe we don't have to have all the answers to these questions. We can we can deal with them as they come up. But to not anticipate them, it seems foolhardy. Uh, you, you know, this is these things will happen. They've already started happening, um, and so they're worth they're worth thinking about in advance of war with China, for instance, when we have no more able-bodied young men to to do the fighting.
4: Yeah, I can see where you're coming from on that. I, I, But I think that, and we probably should be, we know we have laws uh, mm-hmm. so that we anticipate a situation that will happen and try to deter that from happening or when that does happen, we have a system in place where we can address it. That's why we have a a, a system of rules to begin with. Yeah. Um, I am kind of skeptical about this particular hypothetical about being transgender to get out of the draft. Um, but uh, I think I think you could kind of be uh, could, th- th- that could be challenged as fraud, and th- that's something that you could probably have to get like certification from
1: a, a doctor from. Uh, sure, sure. To do for that purpose. I mean, it was the same thing uh, with flat feet and it was the same thing with uh, joining the National. Guard. I mean, I guess the point is people will when you set up a system and there is, you know, I don't want to go to war, and there are these things that can get you out of it. Or, you know, I would like that job. Just ex- people play systems is what I'm saying. And I'm um, and so what we're talking about is creating a new system which says you are not necessarily the gender into which you were assigned or born into, depending on your perspective at birth. I'm just saying expect people to play that system. Now, you could still move forward with it. That doesn't mean that you need to put a stop to transgender acceptance or or uh, all sorts of things. I'm not not at all saying that. I am just saying... People play systems, you know, they play the tax systems, they find loopholes, they find ways to exploit things. So consider that as you make changes to the system. And this is a this is a large, large change to the system because we really do bifurcate a lot of our society, whether we like it or not into things that men do and things that women do is that appropriate you know maybe that'll all break down in the future and maybe everyone will be eligible
2: for the well, exactly. selective That's service the thing. maybe maybe the answer is you let people identify as whatever totally they want, but you draft we, men and women. Yeah, and yeah. the question is do we as a society like that do we like the impact that you has remove on title nine
1: and then there's you know and then it doesn't matter what you identify
2: as you are competing in this pool of yeah, people me and my sister and lebron yeah, yeah. are all going out for the one basketball team in our high school instead of having a men's or women's not saying that's the or solution. you do
1: and then you or you add weight class and you go okay anyone under 120 pounds <laughs>
2: you know there, yeah, there's yeah. that's how the that's, there will be <laughs> solutions i guess i'm just curious what people who have strong feelings about this and who know their answers to this what they would say to these things yeah
1: and just to be clear, because I I don't want this to come across to you or anyone else, is this I'm saying these are reasons to stop the transgender rights movement at all? No, these at are all. things to figure out. These are just these are just fascinating questions that it that it brings up that I as a philosophy person dig. <laughs> like this is what I these are the things that I like to riff on. So uh, to your question, why do we
2: need to know? We don't need to. It's just what I like to it's just what I like to talk about. Well, and I think the thing is, if you want to progress these, then to some extent you should have an answer to this because it's going to get asked at some point right like if this is your thing if you're really want to move the trans movement forward it's worth thinking about this stuff because they these are the exact questions people are going to ask mm-hmm. if it comes to be that trans are completely accepted and self-identification is completely accepted mm-hmm. then you kind of need answers to these questions mm-hmm. so i don't view them as anti-trans questions they're things that we have to talk about if the movement is to move forward
1: mm-hmm.
4: right and i think they would agree with you on that i mean that's kind of like the of the transgender movement right now is about getting laws that guarantee them access to things like, uh, employment, uh, you know, housing and healthcare, um, you know, whether or not they're going to be able to obtain transition related care, like gender reassignment surgery, uh, from a certain, uh, you know, hospital, uh, whether that's going to be publicly subsidized or not. Um, uh, I mean, these are a lot of things that are the transgender movement is, is, is definitely seeking. So, I mean, they do want to have general guidelines for how we address these issues. Yeah.
1: And by the way, I'll say if you, they don't have to be a fan of the podcast, but if somebody that you work with or that, you know, or in the community is interested in these kinds of conversations and and wants to hop on, uh, definitely shoot us a comment or let us know, because it's not something that I've had the chance to talk to a trans person about yet. And they might, they might have answers to all of this stuff (laughs) that I, that I just haven't encountered. Cool. So Anything uh, else from you?
2: No, I think this is a good conversation.
1: Chris, is there anything? I know that we will add your Twitter in the uh, in the bottom corner. Is there anything that you wanted to close with or or add?
4: Let's see. But we kind of hit on a lot of topics here, um, and uh, a lot. Of, and I, I just kind of what you think of my way to kind of bring the two things together, like the role of the media and the role of uh, like you know uh, finding determination and self identification, and self-identification, whether that's appropriate for we draw the lines in terms of, uh, for example, being transgender. And I just kind of want to try to um, uh, extemporaneously uh, find a way to fuse those two together. And I guess the best way I can do that is to uh, have a bit talk about the, the role of LGBTQ media, okay. because of, of which uh, is a, um, I am a part of. And I think this, in a way this kind of shows why that this there is still a role for LGBT community, even as mainstream outlets uh, write about and cover uh, uh, issues affecting the LGBTQ community, um, that by having a media source that is, uh, you know, specifically tailored for uh, the LGBTQ community, and many in most cases, you know, uh, produced by the LGBTQ community, we have kind of a more distinct uh, line to, more of a, a clearer window to what the community is thinking on this issue and, uh, that window is something that, you know, not just LGBTQ people, but all people in all society can look at for, for
2: guidance. Mm-hmm.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I think the other thing that as I'm, as again, extemporaneously trying to bring these two together, what I'm feeling like, and it's exciting and scary is that we are, we are really entering into what is inevitable is the, this age of relativity. Whereas if you go back hundreds of years, like, look, there's one God, this is the way the world is and and this is it. And And if you can't get with the program, you're missing it. And what we are increasingly moving towards is, I think, an understanding of the honest fact that truth is often relative. Like, what is the truth of this? Well, it depends on your perspective, right? And is this statement true? Well, it depends on which way you're looking, okay? What is someone's gender identity? Well, it's fixed. Well, maybe it's not so fixed, right? Maybe it's relative to the culture in which you live because if you move to a different culture, they've got completely different rules, over in Thailand about, you know, two genders and all that sort of thing. So biologists out there, I even though that there's an argumentation that – or a line of argument that XY chromosomes are hard, terribly, completely distinct, I have a suspicion that what you would find is – in and I'm not certain, I'm not a biologist – that if you dug into the microscopic view of, of the chromosomes that – Not every Y chromosome is exactly the same and that some of them are like tending in a different direction, that there's not just these binaries in any area of life. And as a society, we are coping with the growth pains of like, how do we deal with all of this relativity in a world where we need to work together and kind of agree on something that is fixed outside of our perception? It's really a crazy challenge. I don't know how to do it, but uh, I do. uh, We're we're sorting it out, (laughs) I guess.
4: Well, you can tell by our responses, which one of us is the, the person who works in media and which one is, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> interested in the philosophy and metaphysics <laughs> by those responses.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, Chris, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on, man. This has been super fun. Thank you so much. I, I had a blast.